podcast where we discuss the intricacies of the Bolognese tradition. Today's guest is Guy Windsor. Our guest today is the famous Guy Windsor. Thanks for coming on the show, Guy. Hi, it's nice to meet you. So um, we'd like to start with talking a little bit about your background, uh, most particularly okay. how did you get into historical European martial arts? I didn't. What? Okay. <laughs> I didn't. No, no. Okay. What happened was um, I was doing sport fencing and I got super frustrated with the artificialities of it. And I met someone else who was similarly frustrated. And we got together and we started trying to, to fight as if the swords were sharp, which we th okay. thought would be a lot more fun. And then yeah. while we were sort of getting on and doing that, I came across a book called The Sword and the Centuries uh, by Alfred Hutton yep. uh, in, my, in my granny's house, of all places, because my grandfather had been a fencer with an interest in swords and bows and mm -hmm. that kind of stuff. Okay. And... That sort of opened our eyes to the idea that actually there are books that people wrote in the period about how to do this properly. And so we started looking in various libraries and you know, I was at university, so I had access to really good libraries. Right. And we found books like Silver and Angelo and McBain um, and thought, well, hang on, rather than just trying to figure it out from scratch, why don't we have a go at doing what's in the books? And so we did. And a couple of years go by, 1994, we started the Dawn Duelist Society in Edinburgh. And then in 2001, I decided to do this for a living. And it turns out that we weren't the only people on the planet who at about the same time were also inventing the practice of historical martial arts. Um, but yeah, so we didn't get into it, we created it. <laughs> <laughs> well mild bit of flexing there i like it all right that's well great. I, I mean dude i've been doing this for 30 years now i'm entitled to a little bit of a flex i think sure for sure for sure <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing that you actually had the treatises at your university library that's that's a pretty yeah, I mean, we, we found unimaginable them, thing well we, we found them in various places i found um mcbain Okay. Um, his expert swordman's companion from 1728. I found that in the National Library of Scotland. Okay. Um, we also met a guy called Craig Cousins, who is a um, he's a fight director, and he had a small collection of historical treatises that he let us have a look at. So we sort of found more and more of these these books, and then. Eventually, it turned out, like by the late 90s, so five years in or so, that people had found things like the Novati from, I think, 1902, which is a facsimile of the Bassani Dossi manuscript from Fiore. Right. Um, in about 1999, I saw a really dodgy photocopy of Vadi um, and 
sometime earlier than that, maybe it was 1995, I'd seen a really dodgy photocopy of Fiore. Um, around about 98, 99, we also found a really dodgy photocopy of the Royal Armouries manuscript 133. Okay. And so, like, by, so we say 2000, we had realized that there were all of these amazing books out there but we didn't have access to them in a really sort of high resolution form. Right. They were, they were like fifth generation photocopies that, you know, someone had taken scans and maybe printed them out. And those have been photocopied endless times. <laughs> and so we had this, so, <laughs> right, so, right. so our work in the medieval stuff was necessarily constrained by lack of actually legible sources. But we were trying to figure out plays from Fiore in like 1995. Wow, that just sounds so cool. So what did I mean? What did it feel like to be, you know, really uncovering? I mean, not just virgin territory, but just the the idea that there was even a potentiality for engaging in the recreation of historical texts in a martial fashion. I mean, what was that like? Um, it was, well, firstly, we didn't know what we were doing. We had no idea that we were creating a movement. Okay. Like, all right. That would become this like international <laughs> right, right. phenomenon that it is now. Like we it had was no just idea. Saturday. <laughs> it, it was just, it was just, I mean, from my perspective, it was, I really want to know about it from the martial arts perspective. Right. right? I'm much more of a martial artist than I am a historian. Right. Right. So the fact that it is, the reason I'm, I, I really want it to be historically accurate is because I think that it, if it's historically accurate, it is more likely to be good martial arts. Whereas if we, we who have never actually been in a real sword fight and people trying to murder us with big sharp swords, right. if we have a go at f making up a martial art, it's not likely to be nearly as good as what they were actually doing back in the period. That makes sense. Right? So, so I know quite a lot of other people have a much more sort of historical bent towards it. They're much more interested in like, for example, recreating the living history of the period. So, you know, right. trying to bring back the year 1400 in these sort of weekend events or whatever, where all the clothes are right and the food is right and everything. And that stuff is absolutely great. I love doing that as a tourist, right? but I'm definitely a tourist in that area right. in the, in the same way that, um, you know, if, if, if I go and have a go at mounted combat, which my riding is not nearly good enough, I'm basically a tourist when it comes to right to mounted combat. Um, so yeah, so my, uh, my approach has always been, I'm trying to find the best ways of fighting with swords and then teaching that to my students. Of course. Yeah. I mean, right? and, and the historical accuracy is super important because that's also what keeps us honest. Right, because if there are no external constraints, you can make up whatever shit you like and call it authentic. And I have I have been to seminars like that, um, but without that external constraint, you end up basically teaching crap to students who deserve better. So, so I like the historical stuff as a as a constraint. So, it, with the way that we do HEMA now with fencing masks and you know protective gear and stuff of that variety, mm -hmm. um, what kind of artificialities does that impose upon uh, understanding 
the art, the, the true historical art as it was recorded or, you know, as it was meant to be done? Okay, we can't recreate the true historical art as it was meant to be done because it was meant to be done by killing people. Right. Right? That's what it's for. Um, but the way they trained historically, yes, okay, they had a rather more robust attitude towards health and safety perhaps than we do. <laughs> but they still, you know, and, and also they, they weren't tourists, right? They were doing it for real. They were training right. in their professional skill set. We're talking about medieval period, but they're, they're training in their professional skill set. Okay. Right. So I have no doubt that, for instance, they would put on half armor and close the visors and just fight with sharps. Just find out, you know, what would happen if they were fighting without the armor. They would sure. close the visor and fight with sharps. And, you know, a cut to the arm does nothing over armor. Right. But they would know, OK, yes, he's, he's dinged my armor there. If we were not wearing the armor, that would be my arm cut off. Okay. Or if they were training armored combat, they would take it to the point just before the sharp point goes through the male gusset in your right. armpit and right. severs the brachial artery and out comes all your blood. Right. Um, or they would um, use some kind of modified weapon, right? For, for instance, a wooden sword or um, maybe use, maybe to use the pommel end of the sword instead of the point, something like that. I don't know. Um, but you either have to modify the action or the equipment correct right yes, okay. and so to to my mind um it is good practice to to do it from both directions so i do do pair work with no protection and sharp swords okay. i don't recommend it to the casual listener put right. the sharp swords down people until someone competent is telling you what to do <laughs> right <laughs> um and we also use blunt swords and we use masks and helmets and protective gear and all the other stuff but i don't think i don't think you can come at it from just one direction and get an accurate picture okay that makes sense so one of the things that has always kind of struck me is the extent to which uh people feel comfortable ignoring threats to their face and head when wearing a fencing yeah. mask yes. uh, versus if you ever play with a sharp um the, where the the point of the sword commands like one hundred and ten percent of your attention, most of the time. Most but of the time, right? I have a horror story for you. Okay. Okay. Yes, most of the time, most students, when they see a sharp sword pointed towards them, treat it like a sharp weapon. It's treat terrifying. It with respect. It's terrifying. Yeah, it is terrifying, <laughs> and you can't really see it. That absolutely, is death, absolutely. right there. <laughs> but yeah. but many times I have done seminars with you know, okay. 30 or more people and I bring a pair of sharp long swords and those students who I give everyone stuff to do and then those students who want to have a go at a drill sharp on sharp I will take them and we do it sharp on sharp together okay okay so it's not the students are doing it with each other it's one student at a time is doing it with me and there's right. somebody I trust watching everybody else okay, okay? so we tend to do a simple drill that they've already practiced with blunts and masks. Here's the thing. Maybe one in 20 of those students will walk their face onto a sharp point. No because, way. Yes, because they are used to it being blunt and then wearing a mask. And the situation is sufficiently similar that they don't really notice, right? So when I'm in that situation, right, I know that this can happen because I know that people are insane. Okay. And wow. so I and so I have 
I have obviously in every case, because I've never stuck a sharp point into somebody's face. I've taken my point offline so that they don't hurt themselves. And then and then I stick a mask on, on them and I tell them to do it again. <laughs> and then the sharp point, and I'm very careful about the pressure because a sharp point will go through a mask if you're not careful. I let the point actually touch the mask and that usually gets through to them that their technique is inadequate, right? Okay, but, all right. But so yes, most people most of the time absolutely will respect the sharp sword, but enough people have been lulled into a false sense of security by modern equipment, yeah. modern training methods, and okay. you know, trusting that, uh, that the person in front of them is not actually gonna hurt them, that, that they will actually walk their face onto a sharp point. I have seen people try to do it to a sharp point I was holding more than once. Wow. Now, yeah. so I only played just like once or twice with the, the sharp, and the thing that I found was strange was how unintimidating the edge of the sword is relative to the point. Is that also a general human phenomenon? How many times have you been cut? Cut? Uh, yeah. You mean with a sword? Oh, with an, anything. Lots of times, yeah. Okay. Um, personally, I find the edge just as scary as the point. Do you? Um, okay. I, I mean, I used to work as a cabinet maker. And I have been in the room when somebody run their hand over a circular saw. Right. Okay, so I've never right. actually witnessed one of those, like, so, removal of digit kind of things. This yeah, so I, I've, right. I've, been, I've been sort of, you know, taking care of someone who was going into shock while the ambulance arrived because they just okay. got cut. Okay, so got it. So for me, cutting is as frightening as thrusting. And I do a lot of cutting work with sharps. You know, I cut, I cut targets with sharps. Right. Uh -huh. um, so... You know, I'm, I'm, I don't find the point inherently more frightening than the cut. Okay. Um, not least also, usually because the point isn't moving as fast. Okay. Yeah, all right. Um, so, 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 I mean, they're both equally terrifying. They're both, you know, if I screw this up, they're going to kill me. Right. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I don't have any sense of cuts being somehow less problematic somehow than Somehow less thrust. intimidating. Okay, so you probably just need to see people have parts of their bodies removed by the edge of something to uh, change, change that. So um, you had... You know, where we are now in the historical mm -hmm. European martial arts, we've really – we're not just standing on the shoulders of giants, but we're sort of standing on the shoulders of people who are standing on the shoulders who are standing on the shoulders of people who did work 30 years ago, kind of like what you were talking about. Right. So, you know, it, you know, lots of interpretations based on other work other people have done. And I'm wondering, mm -hmm. along the way, you know, there probably were a few, let's say um, – evolutionary wrong paths that people <laughs> yeah what else so not not naming names but can you just okay. tell us now a few of the uh of the more interesting or colorful uh routes that people took in uh interpreting swords during your journey well what tends to happen is that people get carried away with their own story a little bit and I'm as guilty of this as anybody. This is why, this is why we have the historical sources. They keep us honest, okay. right? And you come up with something that works beautifully in that very choreographed context that you just put it. And it feels cool. And you decide you're now the ultimate ninja Jedi. And, and then you either go and check the source and it's 
you know, obviously not what the source is telling you to do. Um, or some very kind and honest person smacks you in the face with a sword <laughs> and you realise that that thing you were doing was rubbish. Um, right, right. But, I mean, the thing is, you have to experiment, you have to play, you have to get it wrong many times. I mean, I mean, these days, you know, with my colleagues studying Fiore, for example, or Capoferro or whatever else, we've been doing it long enough that we have a pretty good idea of the choreographical way that the book intends us to do these plays. And we have good reason to believe we're probably sufficiently right that the author would not be horrified, right? In many cases. Sure. Um, on the way to there, we did have to try out all sorts of random shit that didn't actually work at all. Okay. Um, and, you know, the flying mongoose riposte, for example, was... Ooh. Never a good solution. Tell us about Just, the flying no. mongoose repast. This sounds The fantastic. flying mongoose repast was one, something that we did very early where we sort of misinterpreted um, the jumping backwards that, um, that Angelo says you can do if pressed, if I recall correctly. Um, and, yeah, so basically what happened was instead of just doing an, a kind of a, a short jump backwards with both feet, keeping your structure perfect we'd sort of end up doing a kind of flying mongoose thing and the sword would go out forward and it was absolutely terrible and awful. And fortunately, it has been, it has been you know, lost in the midst of time and abandoned and is no, longer, is no longer used for anything ever. But yes, the flying mongoose riposte was a thing. Got it. So that technique has been deprecated from the current understanding of Fiori. Uh, that, that was Angelo. Oh, Angelo, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yes. The understanding um, of Angelo. And... And, you know, it's, it's difficult things. There are some things in the treatises that are so weird that you, it kind of makes you think, really? Really, is this a good idea? <laughs> and then okay. in almost every case, when you figure out what's actually going on, it actually makes perfect sense and it works just fine in its context, right? right. But then when you take that thing and you try to make it work in the wrong context, you get disastrous results. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, and you know, we've all we've all done it, of course, <laughs> right? right. Um, and you know, me as much as anyone. So, yeah, it's just part of the process. Cool. All right. Thanks. That's that's flying mongoose for post. I love <laughs> the name of that. It's a good one. Okay. I, I won't say who came up with it. Right, right. We don't want to name names because, yeah. that, you know, we, we don't want it to be nasty, just saucy. Yeah, okay. All right. So um, how has so – you, so you're known for doing rapier and longsword, among other things. How right. has your interpretive work with the rapier informed your understanding of the longsword and vice versa? Okay, generally speaking – I think all longsword students would do well to get a thorough grounding in rapier because it would massively improve their point work and their understanding of blade relationship and mechanics, right? But it's, at the same time, really important to understand that the rapier mechanics are fundamentally different for good reason, okay? okay. Um, with longsword, the parry is always done with the middle of your blade against the middle of theirs, primarily because you don't have any hand protection other than a simple cross guard. Right. With a rapier, you have a complex hilt that is protecting the hand. 
right? Okay. So with rapier, you are explicitly instructed to parry with the first half of the blade. And with longsword, we are explicitly told by Fiori, at least, to parry with the middle of the blade. Okay? Okay. Um, that said, um, honestly, most longsword people, if they took up rapier for a while, they would learn things that they could do with their point, which are perfectly correct for longsword, but their point control would improve, their ability to slip the point would improve, get it to the other side. Um, and it would. it also has the huge advantage in that it's much simpler so basically 90 percent of rapier is hands in quarter thrust hand in seconda thrust that's about it oh and there's a disengage right but right. if you can switch from seconda to quarter and back again and you can do disengages and you can thrust you can do most of what rapier is right okay um so by having that that simplified system, you can get people fencing a lot earlier. So it's easier to learn things like control of measure and timing and whatever else. And also, um, it's easier to make a rapier safer to thrust with than it is to make a longsword. Right. So you can actually get students fencing at a higher intensity level somewhat earlier in their, in their practice right. um, by modifying the weapon, obviously, and also by wearing a protective equipment like we discussed earlier. And that experience by itself would do longsword people a lot of good. You can actually also use backswords for the same thing. Because a backsword is just like a yard-long stick with a basket over the handle end. Okay. Um, and you can fence reasonably safely with a backsword wearing just a fencing mask and maybe an elbow cut over your sword arm. Okay. Right? Interesting. Yeah. And so I use that a lot to get students actually fencing at speed, you know, and really doing the thing so learning measure learning timing and you can get relative beginners to do that relatively quickly but if they're fencing at the same intensity with a long sword the potential for serious injury is much higher so that's kind of the big advantage of the rapier is you can get fencing with it soon and there's a low chance of injury at the point where students are most likely to be injured or to injure their sparring partner uh, yeah, that's largely true. Okay. Um, but also, like, the point control thing. Honestly, a lot of longsword fences, they don't control their point very well. Right. Um, tends to go everywhere. Whereas with rapier, it has to go precisely where you want it to go. Right. Um, so it's, it's also good for, shall we say, getting another angle on the problem of precision. Yes, okay. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, I've been thinking about trying to get our beginners started with spear for a lot of the same reasons. Right. Point control, and uh, you can, if you use a flexible, like a rattan, you can pretty much just stab willy-nilly with low chance of hurting people. Yeah, um, uh, if it's very flexible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it, yeah, and, and you want to rub a point on there as well, I would say. Of course, yeah, I, I yeah. assumed, yeah. So, but... Uh, <laughs> They're they're a ton of fun. They're also very cheap, so which is yeah, that helps. Nice, yeah. And then they uh, they're beneficial for the instructor because you know you can kind of get bored teaching, but if you go sword versus spear, you can now take your your beginner students and they can become a good training partner for you as well. So it. Uh, so Actually, yeah, I I've I I have never gotten bored teaching. Well, God bless you, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's like, and, and even, even when training with beginners, 
right? Because with a beginner, you have a naturally built random generator. Sure. Right? Sure, yeah. So they will do all sorts of stuff that you have to pay attention to and you have to keep them safe because they're beginners. Of course. And you have to deal with whatever weird random shit they do because of some movie they watched. Right. And, and at the same time, you have to convey the impression to them that the art is worth learning because it works. Right. Right? It is a supremely challenging fencing environment to do well. I mean, beating a beginner isn't terribly hard. Right. But keeping them safe while inspiring them to want to learn the technical stuff, that's much harder. And any kind of any advanced technical challenge is intrinsically interesting. Right. That that's a good point. The uh for I think for me and for a lot of people, one of the things that is frustrating about beginners is you get beginners and you spend this time teaching them and then they don't come back. And that happens over and over and over and that, that tends, sure. to be, tends to turn it into a grind. Okay. There are approaches for that. Oh, well, pray tell. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, because obviously, you know, I've experienced the same thing because, you know, right. I, ran a, I ran my own school for 15 years and it was my job, right? right. So... Um, almost all of the income that my children lived off came from students paying me to teach them. So when a beginner quit, it mattered every time. Right. Right. Okay. So there are several parts of the problem. One part is student retention. And the way you get students to stay is by making the training what they came for. Um, that has, has a built-in risk of you might start dumbing things down. Right. And so what you have to do is be absolutely clear in your advertising so you get the right people through the door. And then you have to have a culture that makes them feel welcome and supported so that they can take the emotional risks of doing things wrong so that they can actually learn. Right? Okay. So it starts with the advertising. You've got to attract the right people. Make Make your... Um, make make the kind of the club culture apparent in the advertising. I mean, for instance, um, one great thing you can stick a, a rainbow flag on your flyers, and it will uh -huh. keep out a certain class of asshole. Right? <laughs> I mean, oh, just, that's why people do that. <laughs> right? Yeah, because it's, because it's not it's so just, much an invitation as it's a a warning that we right. just don't want those people who would care about well, that here. Exactly. Exactly. So so right. it just okay. it, right. without without saying without saying you're not welcome, it establishes what is welcome, and therefore people who think that's not okay. for me won't show up. Right. Generally. Right. So. That's an important part of it. So you have okay. the right kind of people. The sort of people you want in your school are there for the beginner's class. Right. Then you have to um, have the culture there that matches your advertising so that they feel they're in the right place and they feel welcome yeah. and supported. And the process by which you train them needs to be right for the kind of student you've attracted. And there are lots of different correct ways to do it. Right. There's nothing wrong with having a very sort of regimented beginners course, which is the same every time. So everyone knows what to expect. And it does this, 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 this and this. That's one right. approach. Um, it's also not wrong. And it's my preferred approach to modify absolutely everything based on who's present in the room at the time. Right. So 
even in day one of the beginners class, I give students the opportunity to choose certain things, right? So let's say we've done a dagger technique and I'll say, okay, now, would you like to see the counter to this technique or would you like to see the same technique done against a different attack? And so they have a choice. And you know, they put their hands up and whichever is the majority, right. that's what we do next. So they're all, yeah, so they're given the sense of agency over their training from the very beginning. That really helps with retention too, okay? So that's part of the problem, right? If the marketing, so you attract the right people, and then the culture and the way you train them, which keeps them. But there is always going to be attrition, right? Somebody may have a kid, and so they don't have time. They decide that their time at home with their baby is more important than their time in the sale training swords. And I cannot, I cannot for Can't one second criticize that, that, argue, yeah, that position. That's like, that's good parenting. Um, but it's also good parenting to realize you need a night off a week. And so hand the baby to your co-parent, if you have one, lucky, pe- lucky people have co-parents. Um, and so get a night off to go, you know, bash your mates over the head with swords and right. come back to parenting refreshed. I mean, right. it's not a, it's not a, yes. right. But the point is, as life circumstances change, some students will naturally fall by the wayside, even if you do nothing wrong. Right? Right. So... You need to see the whole thing from further away, which is, okay, by the time I've had a thousand students come through my school, I expect to have this kind of level of students at the top end and this many students at the bottom end. And hopefully in that thousand, there will be maybe two who actually bring actually sort of stick long-term and start doing things that actually contribute to the art itself, for instance. Like maybe they go off and start their own school or maybe they write a book on a source that they're fascinated by or maybe they notice a gap in your curriculum and decide to become expert in, I don't know, French Polacks, for example, right? Sure, yeah. Yeah, So, um, so you need all of those students who train casually to subsidize the training of the people who will do it seriously, right? And so the people who just come for a year and then go off and do something else, they have in the year that they were paying their training fees have been hopefully a a pleasant and friendly part of the club culture. So it was good to have them. They have supported the... Um, development of students who will go on to do great things for the art. That's basically they're being um, a Medici to a Michelangelo. Right, of course. Right? Yep. Right. There's literally nothing negative there. Yes, it's a shame that they had other things that took them away for whatever reason. But it's, you know, if you, if you see the, the, the positive things that they brought, you'd be grateful for the things that they brought and so you don't need to feel bad about they can't bring that anymore. Right. Right. They contributed so, and participated in your culture and, and your school. Right. And helped exactly. build it and keep it what it is. Yeah. I mean, I had, I had one student who came once a week, every week for 10 years and then quit because he went off to do something else. And he was a great student. And I have nothing but positive feelings about him. And it's a shame that he ended up going and training something else. Right. But, you know, he would probably never have got to do that if he hadn't had his basic right. training with us. And given his 
other commitments, he was never going to give it more than once a week. So honestly, he was never going to get particularly far along anyway. Right. Once a week is not a lot. Right. But he was basically a massively consistent patron of the art for that entire time. And that by itself is a service to the art. Of course. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 Totally. Now you have kind of um, a pretty high level of seeing this, which Mm -hmm. I'm assuming is kind of based on your years of experience of teaching or decades of experience. Yeah. I I didn't learn this in the beginning. (laughs) Right. It took me a while. (laughs) So as a teacher, what was your journey like in terms of your own understanding of how to teach? And uh, okay. Uh, all right, so if we start from when I turned professional in 2001, yes. Yes. Um, basically, I had no formal training in how to teach anything right? other than uh, an intermediate foil coaching qualification okay. from the British Academy of Fencing. That was it. Well, that's something. That's something, yeah. Um, and I've been to a ton of martial arts classes, both good and bad, mm-hmm. right? So I'd seen the kind of instructor I wanted to emulate and the kinds of instructor I did not want to emulate. And so basically what I did in the beginning was I trusted my instincts and I just taught the way it seemed right to me. And most of the time that was, that worked pretty well. Okay. But, and I sort of learned from experience up to a point. Um, but it did get to a stage after about eight or nine years or something like that, that I thought, you know what? I don't think I'm really doing my student you know i'm not serving my students properly they need they deserve better and i was like well how the hell do i get better i've been to lots of you know other instructor seminars i've had while i was running my school in helsinki we had maybe three or four foreign instructors or external instructors come and teach a weekend seminar for us every year so i'd seen maybe 50 or 60 seminars from other people in my cell in that time and i'd learned lots about how to teach and also how not to teach from those um and that was all fine, but I needed something a bit more structured. So I went and did um, an advanced foil training course at the British Academy of Fencing. I did not take the exam at the end because I would have failed it <laughs> because the technical standard is very high. And I hadn't actually done foil for 15 years at that point. Right. So, you get it from a teacher for using it right. a, like a pedagogical resource, not a technical resource. Exactly. Right. And the critical thing that I learned there, the one massive takeaway I mean, lots of it was useful and interesting. And of course, I immediately um, got the chief instructor there to come over to Finland to do another seminar like that for my people. (laughs) That's great. Um, But it was the way you tell your student that what they're doing is correct is they hit you and you don't hit them. And the way you communicate that they have made a mistake is they fail to hit you and or you hit them. Right. Okay. Sure. Okay. So that's it. If you can do that perfectly every time, your student will learn at an astonishingly fast rate because every time they make a mistake, they, they don't get, they don't get to hit you and and you hit them. That's not always appropriate to hit them, but you know, when it's appropriate to do so. And when I say hit, I mean my sword touches them on the mask or the body or something like that. Of course. I'm not right. actually, I'm not, I'm not talking about a punitive beating every time they fail to parry. Right. <laughs> right. Um, but what that does is it makes 
success and failure crystal clear. And so it is very, very easy to establish whether the student is training at their optimal rate of failure or not. Right? And if you think of like a computer game, which are perhaps the most efficient teaching devices ever invented, right? Because they hook you in and right. you, you succeed when you do it right and you fail when you do it wrong every single time. The computer is perfect at that. And yes, in some games there's sort of, there are gray areas, but generally speaking, it's absolutely consistent. And you can modify the level of intensity to your current level of play. Right. right, you have level one, level two, level three, and so on, right? Right. So you gradually increase the difficulty as your skills increase, right? And that's what we should be doing as historical martial arts instructors. It's the same, right? So that's the thing that I learned from that British Academy of Fencing course. And it was 12 hours a day for five days straight. And I was absolutely out of my depth and, and uncomfortable pretty much the entire time. <laughs> It was it was great. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> yeah. It does. Yeah. Um, and I mean, that wouldn't work for everyone because you do have to have a, a sport fencing background to be able to right. do the things well enough that you can actually learn what they're teaching you. Um, and I'm not suggesting that the modern sport fencing model is a perfect fit for what we do in historical martial arts, right? But right. that's where that's where I learned this super critical thing of. The teacher's job is to create an environment in which the students fail at the optimal rate. And of course, you, it, go, it should go without saying, but we'll say it anyway. That failure has to be both psychologically and physically safe. Of course. Yeah. Right. Right. In you say, of course, fact. you say, of course, but actually people sometimes do forget the psychological bit and sometimes do forget the physical bit right. too. Right. It's, it's natural when you're a parent to think that way. It's harder right. when you're a young person trying to impose your will upon the world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so then, um, I mean, structuring classes and stuff, that's all fairly straightforward. But the next sort of major sort of shift that I took was in 2016, actually the end of 2015, I retired from teaching full time. Okay. and became a consultant, right? So rather than I'm teaching classes four nights a week and most weekends, students in whatever club, wherever, bring me over to solve particular problems for them um, or to just run a seminar for their entertainment or whatever. I mean, they, they decide what they want and I come and I give it to them. Because it occurred to me some years before that that one of the difficulties of the professional historical martial arts instructor model is it's usually based on teaching classes uh -huh. and the problem with classes is that what tends to happen is the student uh, sorry the teacher shows up and they teach their prepared material right and then everyone goes home and that is problematic for two reasons firstly historically the teacher was socially inferior to the students Think of Salvatore Fabris and the King of Denmark. Right. 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 There is absolutely no question who is in charge in that room. Right. The King right. is always in charge in every room. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Right. So, um, but that sort of authority, authority coming from the top model was kind of anti-historical. 
and it has its place. I mean, there, are, you know, there's no question. For example, when I'm having a flying lesson, I do exactly what my instructor tells me when he tells me to do it, and that's Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Right. There's there's a time and, and place for obedience, but if you're teaching dualists in a dueling art, obedience is not a virtue you particularly want to encourage. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Um, so that's part of it. And the other part is that the students generally, if you show up with a class plan, are going to respond to that plan in their own individual ways, right? Uh -huh. So ideally, a class plan should be what everyone in the class has just decided that they want, right? Okay. Which is almost impossible, okay? So what I, what I do, because I'm not usually teaching a 90-minute class on this subject once a week, I'm usually doing a whole weekend, so there's more time. So I can say, well, okay, so what are you here for? And they can tell me. And if there's 20 people in the room and they all have a different thing they're interested in, like this person wants to do the exchange of thrust, this person wants to be better at falling, this person wants to work on their um, ability to stand still under pressure, this, you know, they all have their different things. You can, in the scope of a full day, make sure that everybody gets something that they came for okay. and, and structure the whole thing so that it makes sense as a narrative from beginning to end. Right. So it's not just a whole bunch of unconnected things. It's a chain that makes sense. Sure. And each student has their own particular link in that chain, mm -hmm. hmm. which is a, it's a better model, I think, for student development. Um, but it is very, very difficult to do if you've just got 90 minutes and 25 people in class. Also, yeah. it takes right. a pr pretty strong background of material and teaching experience to be able to come up with a sophisticated, tailored, yet flowy lesson on the fly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's why, you know, I've been <laughs> teaching... very high level. <laughs> I, I'd, I'd been teaching for a full time for about 13 years or so before I really cracked it. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's awesome, man. That is really awesome. But it's, it's, it works. And, and most importantly, it's good for the students because it, it, it also means that they expect to have their own ideas about what they're going to do next. Like we said about in the first class of the beginners course, they get to choose. Do they want to do this one or this one? Right. Um, when they show up to class, if they've trained with me before, they know that if they have something that they're struggling with, they can bring it and we will deal with it in class if it's reasonably with on, on topic. Uh, and if it's not reasonably on topic, I'll grab them in the lunch break and deal with it there. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then they'll be engaged pretty much the whole time because they know at exactly. no matter what, their part is coming. And right. So and, and we're training them to be autotelic people. Right? What's the their, um it's it, it means to set your own goals. Uh-huh. Yes. Okay. And basically an autotelic personality has the best shot at mental health because in almost any situation you can find something that you can do about it. Yes. Okay. Um, the book that I'm basing the off is um, uh, Mikhaili oh my god pronouncing this, this Hungarian name is tricky it's Chick Sent Me High I think is how you pronounce it and the book is called Flow that goes into autotelic personalities in quite some depth yeah, um, and that, that's, that, that's a book that really sort of switched me on to oh, hang on I can frame the kind of the underlying thing of the, that I'm teaching my students as autotelism being autotelic okay. right 
Right. So if they come out of it having set their own goals and accomplished it, then we have accomplished something that is fundamentally useful to them, far more so than, you know, being able to do a decent parry. Because let's face it, no one's actually trying to murder them. Right. Yeah. Wow. Right, because they're basically... Is you're basically creating a situation in which they can grow as a person and this becomes just a vector by which they do it. Exactly. I love it. That's great, man. That's that's well, awesome. I'm, I'm glad you approve. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So we're we're trying to grab some low hanging fruit here, uh okay. based off of your extensive experience. Um have you noticed a few more common types of students and you know that that most of us teachers are going to uh, be teaching in how best to help them? Um, okay. Yes, kind of. Right. But I would propose a different way of framing it. Uh, of course. Okay. Every, every student, every human being is a unique combination of various attributes and skills and weaknesses and strengths and various other things. Right. Right. And it is occasionally convenient to put them in a box with a label on it so you know how to deal with them. Like sure. beginner, for example, or right. the talkative one or, right. Um, right. or, 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 the, or the, the one who thinks they know more than they actually do. Um, right. Or, right. or the dangerous one. Or the, day, or, or, the quiet, or the quiet one who the will get one. on and, and do whatever you tell them to right. and, and never cause you any trouble, right? Yes. But the problem is that those boxes are always a bad fit and they encourage, they encourage that kind of categorization on the part of the instructor that doesn't necessarily serve the student particularly well. Okay. Right? So, um, you know, you have to notice these attributes, Right. right. This particular student is quiet. Are they quiet because they're just naturally quiet or are they quiet because they're intimidated? Those are two very different things. OK. Right. Um, and the the way I would go about sort of handling these is, is any, any given behavior is always solving a problem for the person who's doing it. Exactly. Right. Uh -huh. So the person is loud because it solves a problem for them. Maybe that problem is they feel that they're not being heard, right? Right. Maybe that problem is they're just a dickhead, right? You and don't know the reason for it. You, you don't know the reason for it, right? But rather than addressing the student, what I try to do is create the environment in which, in which the behaviors that I want come naturally to the students in the environment, okay. right? So um, that's... It's, it's tricky because the behavior you want at any given time may be quite different, right? Sometimes right. you need them just to get on and do the thing. And sometimes you need them to ask questions. And sometimes it's better for everyone if one person asks a question or if that person doesn't ask a question. And, you know, it's, it's, so it's, it's a constant, the environment you're creating is constantly changing based on the, the needs of the class as a whole and the needs of right. the individual students within it. Um, let me give you a, a straightforward example. Yeah. Day one of a beginner's course, almost invariably, um, the students are going to be a bit nervous because they're in a new environment and they don't know what the rules are and they don't know you 
and maybe they've come with a friend and that's good because that gives them a bit of emotional security but it also means they're likely just to train with that friend the whole time and not actually get more comfortable in the environment um and so as part of the first uh, the first class of any beginner's course on any historical martial arts subject that I would teach, I will introduce them to the source that we're working from, right? And so we come to the book and they all stand like two meters away. That's a bit more than two yards for you Americans. Yeah, um, no, two meters. And they're all, they're all sort of not, they're all kind of not bumping into each other much. And they're, you know, they're standing quite far away from the book and they can't really see it. Okay. And that's fine. I'm just showing them the book exists. This is what we're basing stuff off of. And then maybe 20 minutes, maybe half an hour later, having cracked a few jokes, made a mistake in front of them, generally got them sort of psychologically warmed up as well as physically warmed up, right? We go back to the book to check a specific thing that they now have a reason to be interested in because it's specific to what they have just done, right? Oh, we, took, we started in this position and we swung through that position and we ended up in this other position. Why are we going to have a look at those positions in the book? Right? Okay. And if I've done my job properly, they are literally jostling me out of the way to get a better look at the book. <laughs> right? I love that. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And so, okay. and so that tells me whether they are getting comfortable in the environment. Right? So mm-hmm. it's lovely to see, you know, when they're... When, when it happens and sometimes it happens but some people are left out right so you know that those are the people that your senior students who are assisting you they should be working with those people next to make them feel more part of the group and they're the ones who are probably going to need a particular like you know as you walk past them oh that was nice got right. it okay. you know I, I tend to avoid using um, any language that it revolves around judgment, like good, mm-hmm. bad, that kind of thing. But sometimes it's more important to make them feel like they're doing the right thing by, by saying something like that than it is sure. for them to actually develop their physical skills faster. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, it's so, so yeah, rather than typing each student individually, I look at the behaviors that are occurring and try and modify the environment so that, the students within the group and the group as a whole are all behaving in the kind of way that makes for a useful and sensible and enjoyable class for everyone. Got it. So if I can summarize, um, you don't really type students by type. You, you just look for certain qualities that are coming out. You try to create the environment by which the qualities that you seek to come out would naturally come out. And exactly. you notice a particular one of comfort and discomfort in the case of beginners. Right. And how to deal with and how to identify who is who and how to deal with each one strategically. Right. And, okay. yeah, and some people are going to be overconfident and mouthy right. and annoying. Right. right. I was I was student. Um, okay. He had this incessant need to ask an annoying question at the end of every demonstration, which didn't need to be asked so that to actually do the thing, and it just got really tedious. Right? right. And so, when everyone was training, I just went up to him quietly and I said, "I bet you fifty push-ups you can't keep your mouth completely shut until the end of class." <laughs> <laughs> right okay right and he went yeah, 50 push-ups in and then and he went he went you're on 
So he kept his mouth completely shut for the rest of the class and I did 50 push-ups. It's a good right? trade. Yeah. Right? And then it twigged. And he went, ah, I get it. And he was fine after that. <laughs> right? Uh, right. Right. I mean, the classic, the classic kind of, you know, drill instructor, martial arts instructor person would say, you're talking too much, do 50 push-ups. Right. Right? Which, yeah, it doesn't really address what's going on. Right. It's not but that correct. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Angelic student until he moved to a different country two years later. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Because as, as we said earlier, people, people will leave. Right. I love these teaching hacks that you, you're sharing with us. This is, and this is my life. I mean, stuff. this, this, this is what I do. <laughs> yeah. It's like what Manchialino says, you know, wisdom is born through experience. So that's right. And the Anonymo as well. Yeah. Uh, so continuing on uh, with the teaching mm -hmm. question here, uh, what are the most important insights from your journey as a teacher that you try to pass on to uh, teachers that you teach, essentially? Because that's, that's kind of a lot of where you are now is instructing instructors, right? Um, I, I, I actually teach a lot of beginners, too. So, but yes, I, I do teach teachers quite a bit. I actually, if I can plug it quickly, I have a course on how to teach that people ah, can, yeah, can learn from. Yes. Um, anyway, like the, in, in terms of like teaching specifics, it's basically variations and specific ways of doing what we've just been discussing, how to tailor the class or tailor the individual lesson to the needs of a specific student. Right. Right. But generally, um, one thing I had to learn that took a while was to trust my students, right? Okay. So when I started out with no training and no qualifications and, you know, no business running a professional school at all, um, I felt that I had to keep absolutely rigid control over every aspect of the class or someone was going to die, right? Right. Over time, it relaxed and relaxed and relaxed. And it even relaxed to the point that some people who really liked having a kind of sensei dude in charge quit because it wasn't strict enough anymore, right? They, they liked that, right? Um, and fine, fair enough, you know, to each their own. Um, but what I learned to do was to trust the students and trust the culture. If you create a safe training culture, Accidents may still happen, but they're not going to be stupid accidents or preventable accidents. They're going to be natural accidents. Like a blade breaks when you, you bought a new sword six weeks ago and the blade broke and the piece goes flying across the room, right? Right. That can happen. That happens. And that's not your fault. It's your responsibility, but it's not your fault, right? Um, so that's part of it. Trust the culture. Trust the students. Um, another thing is... Okay, us instructors are usually raging egotists, okay? <laughs> and, and... Guilty. <laughs> guilty as charged, right? So one of the hardest things for an instructor to learn is it's not about you, right? It's the same with writing books. It's not about you. If you write a book for yourself, that's absolutely fine. You can print it out and stick it on your shelf, and that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do if that's what you want to do. But if you're writing it to be published... You're writing it for other people. And those are the people who matter. Right. right? The fact that you particularly like this great long 
you know, digression into something you find fascinating that no one else cares about right. is irrelevant. The fact that you like it doesn't matter. Does it serve the reader? If yes, keep it. If no, bin it. Right. Mm-hmm. right? Or put it in a different book, which is about that topic, that people who like that topic can come and buy. Don't put it in your book about this other thing. Right? So it is hard because, again, most instructors, raging egotists, uh-huh. which explains an awful lot of human politics, of course. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, getting, getting the idea across that it's not about you. It's also, it's not even about the sources. Now, this is heresy in some circles, uh-huh. but I would say that the needs of the human beings in your class are more important than what it says in the book. Heresy. Recant. (laughs) Recant. (laughs) Well, so long long as you are honest about what it says in the book and say, it says in the book this thing, but we're not going to do that because that's bloody dangerous. We're going to do this thing instead. That's fine. But (laughs) slavish adherence to the letter of the book does not make a good instructor. It might make a good academic, but it does not make a good instructor. Right, because it's all best, about the student all the time. It seems that the best instructors I've come across use the book as a wellspring of principles from which to teach. Uh, right, what they're actually trying to convey, and yeah, and and also as as constraints on what they can legitimately teach. Right, right, right. Um, rather than holy writ. Right, it's not the book. Yeah, I mean, I, I have I have as much respect for the sources as anybody, right? I mean, if you read my books, this will become a, apparent. Um, but that doesn't mean that the book is more important than the people. That took me a long time to learn, because for a long time I was like, no, 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 the holy sacred art is the thing. <laughs> and, yeah. and everyone else... Either they either they live to serve the art or they can fuck off. Can I say fuck on your show? I didn't ask. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah, fucking fine. fine. Don't worry okay. about it. <laughs> okay, fine. All right. Um, and it, it it took it took me time to realize that I was flat wrong on that. Right. The art serves the people, right. and some people choose to serve the art because it serves the people. Right. 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 But right. so people it, by it, people in general are not obliged to serve the art. It goes the other it's way. sort of a didactic relationship where they feed into one another where, you know, I mean, you do use that as a constraint to kind of, like you said, you have guideposts basically, which are the texts themselves. And then like when you're trying to teach to your students, you're not having such a strict adherence that you're, um, I don't know, forcing somebody to do something that might not work for their body. Cause I think that's kind of right. what you're getting at. Right. Like, I mean, if you have a student, that's, who, that's part of it. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if the, I mean, the way the thing is done in the book, it may work for that body type or it may work when you have sufficient training that that, I mean, think of the one inch punch, right? Mm-hmm. You, you don't teach a beginner to punch by teaching them a one inch punch. You teach them to punch by teaching them like a, a two and a half foot punch. Right. Right. And over time, as they get better and better at punching, they will need less and less reach to punch effectively. Um, so we, what we're seeing in the treatises in many cases, what I'm thinking of right now is, is seconda in the rapier. Most students I've come across, their seconda is shit, right? It is not fit for purpose. It may, it may look like the book, 
but if I put any pressure on the outside line, their sword collapses, right? Mm -hmm. Because they're copying the external form that is described in the book, which is not a bad place to start, but if it doesn't work, you do have to do something about it. And so when I'm teaching Seconda, if a student has any problems with it at all, we start with not Seconda at all, but go to half sword and close that outside line with both arms extended. Mm -hmm. Anything on the outside of that blade is not getting through. Right, because you are in a half sword position and it is rock solid. Right. Okay. Yeah. So what you need to do now is figure out how to get that level of solidity, or what feels like that level of solidity, getting it closer and closer to what's actually shown. So first off, you you take away the the hand that's on the blade, and that makes life difficult. And so you have a hip turn and you have a shoulder position and you have a certain kind of extension and a certain kind of grip and you put your feet a certain way and your whole body is doing the seconda thing, right? And when you can do it in one hand, big like that, you can then modify and modify and modify, keeping the strength until it looks like it is in the book, right? And then they can do seconda. Sorry? That's that's actually really interesting because I, I feel like in my experience with the Bolognese tradition, right, we do a lot of beats, like a, a lot of beats mm-hmm. to the sword, or at least you yeah. do, especially if like you're doing the Anonimo, right? And um, that's, to me, that has been one of the hardest thing to teach students because it is basically a one inch punch. It's a, it's a small motion yeah. that you're putting a lot of force into and it's best served if it ends in guard and it's in a prepared yeah, position. Yeah, point in line. Yeah, so in order to get students to get that and get the strength and the body mechanics and the snap of the wrist to effectively do a beat. Um, so I guess to I, kind I of start with beats that are much too big. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Start with, yeah, a, yeah. start with a nice big beat that actually works and then work your way up to making it smaller and smaller and smaller. Okay. Yeah. That's how I would do it. I like that. That's yeah. how I have done it for a while. <laughs> Yeah, and it's finding it's finding the specific thing that works for a specific student. Like, um, I have one student, um, Jan Nehergdal, he will not mind me saying this because I've told this story a million times and even put it in books. Um, he was having trouble with the plate 13 from Capafaro, which is the Scanatura, where there's an attack on the inside line and you drop your point over it, push it out to the side, and then you thrust in underneath with a kind of rising thrust that goes up through the body and literally slaughters your opponent. Scanatura means literally slaughtering like you slaughter an animal, <laughs> right? Love that. Um, and he had this thing where he, he would make contact with the blade and pass forward too soon and he would stick his waist onto the point hmm. over and over again. And so I got a sharp rapier off the rack and we did it with a sharp and he was like, oh, fuck. And he got it well the hell out of the way. And, and, you know, his, his scanatura has been beautiful ever since. That, that's how we do uh, teach uh, Guardi di Testa head guard in Bolognese. If somebody can't form it quickly, you just say, you just swing a sword as hard as you can, and all of a sudden they go, oh, stick their arm yeah. up with good structure, project right. like the force of their hips into it. It stops like, there you go. That's what you do. That's Don't let you do. it hit yeah. your head. Yeah, you just have to give them the right stimulus, right. and and they will start doing it right. And then, of course, what you then do is you make it more efficient, closer to the the text but it's not reasonable to expect modern people to suddenly be able to do the techniques as they're shown in some of them the books right straight away i mean it took me about two and a half years of constant training to get into capoeira's guard position and i was a professional mm-hmm. historical martial arts wow. instructor during the, that time because i could do a reasonable 
guard position, but my hips were flexible enough in that right. very particular way to have my spine in the right place while I was doing it, okay. right? And it took me a couple of years, a bit more, of, of making it a priority in my training till I got there. And that's me doing it for a living, right? right? It's absurd to expect somebody just off the street having their second rapier right. class ever. Any hope, yeah. To, yeah, and, and so the objective is not to make them take the position. The objective is to teach them what the position is for and get them to have that functionality and then modify it. Sure. Yeah? Yeah. And so, yeah, it's, it's not about making them conform. It's about, it's about understanding what the, what the position or the action is supposed to actually do, letting, finding ways for them to be able to do that, and then to take that feeling and transfer it or develop it into positions that are closer and closer to what we actually want. Right. Yeah. Um, so there was something you brought up that I'd like to add in here before we got started. Mm -hmm. uh, before we start moving into a new direction, um, you were talking about the potential of becoming a professional uh, instructor of our sword right. arts. Uh, what do you think are the important steps for a people interested in that to take? Ha, ha. How long have you got? <laughs> um, uh, let's give it. Let's right. keep it ten <laughs> minutes or less. <laughs> okay, fine. All right. It is very very difficult to make what you might think of as a normal middle-class income teaching historical martial arts, right? So the first thing, ideally, is you never get addicted to a modern middle-class income, right? So I went straight from being a student, okay. making no money, to being a cabinet maker and antiques restorer, making no money. I mean, literally, my first annual salary was in, uh, as a cabinet maker, was in like 97, and I think I made £6,000 that year, right? That's about maybe $8,000 for the year, right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Right? It, it got a bit better from there. You know, by the end of the next year, I was making maybe 50% more than that, so about £9,000 a year. And that's about where it stayed. Cabinet makers right? don't get paid very well out there. They, they, make, they do well here. <laughs> well, it depends. It, yeah. it really, I mean, I was, I was basically a, a beginner learning the trade. Ah, okay. Cool. And... And, you know, but then when I went off to teach historical martial arts, I was not expecting to live off, right. I don't know, $4,000 a month. I was expecting to live off maybe 1200 if I was lucky. Okay, got it. Right? And the thing is, when you don't have children and you're relatively young, that's fine. Right. Um, if you're older and already addicted to a reasonable income because you have a day job then the trick is to make your historical martial arts business because it has to be a business if you're going to get paid for it that means there are other models i mean for example you can start a non not-for-profit thing which pays you a salary that is legal right. if you if you do it correctly um but it still has to have enough money coming in every month to pay you every month okay. right so it's in that sense of business um so you have to then grow your business to the point where it can meet what you need every month right. before you can quit, right? Especially if you have kids. So <clears throat> basically, um, there are many different models. Most people start out, and this is probably the best place to start because it gives you the most experience, of traveling around to different clubs in your area okay. and 
and teaching four or five nights a week and getting paid to do that, right? Okay. Um, that's not a bad model. And if you have, let's say, 20 people in this town and 10 miles away, there's another 20 people in that town and another 10 miles away in a different direction, there's another person, 20 people in that town. You don't have to have 60 or 80 or 100 people in your hometown. You can have them spread out. So quite a lot of people start out by that sort of, it's their club, but it's spread out. It will usually start in one place, but then maybe a student moves to a nearby town to take a job or something and they want to take, you know, they want to keep going. And so they start their own little club there and, and so it develops. Um, or you start your club wherever you want it to be and you just make sure your marketing is correct. Like, like we discussed earlier, you, your marketing is attracting the right people who uh -huh. understand that you're trying to make a living doing this and understand that you are, okay, most beginner instructors, for good reason, do not feel that the level of instruction they are able to give is deserving of a professional salary. But that is not what's going on. What is actually going on is that people are paying for the ability to come to your classes. And it's not just the instruction they're paying for. They're also paying for the environment and the opportunity and they are supporting your professional growth. And, and they are honest, they're explicit about it. I mean, I have had people come up to me and say, you know, you know, they've been training me for three years or so. Say, look, you know, three years ago, you really weren't that good, but I thought you might become good. So I <laughs> thought I'd support that. And, and I'm, I'm happy to say that you've, nice. you've, you've lived up to my expectations. Nice. Which is massively complimentary and also not at the same time. <laughs> right? Right. So, sure. so it's not, they're not paying you for instruction. They're paying you for the existence of the club. Yeah. Right. Okay. Um, and then there's like standard business practice, you know, attract the right people, look after them properly and they will stay. Also make it absolutely clear at the beginning that you expect people to pay. Okay. And one of the biggest barriers in the way of people doing this for a living is so many people who are not doing it for a living and are not charging properly. Right. Right. Like even an amateur club should be charging enough money every month that there's enough surplus every month that they can, for example, have buy loaner gear. So beginners have stuff to practice with right. or pay for an instructor to come in and give external seminars. Cause that's one of the fastest routes to improving. Um, or, to pay your instructor to go to an event because that will improve your instructor and so on and so on, right? So even an amateur club should be running at a cash surplus because that surplus will go towards serving the art in one way or another. Right, okay. So so you've, you've, you get your club up and running and hopefully it grows and maybe you get these branches and you're working ridiculously hard. Don't expect to have a social life except you know maybe having a pint in the pub with your students afterwards but you're probably going to have to drive home afterwards so it's just the one pint maximum and better <laughs> no pint at all <laughs> right um, and you know I, I have a friend who right now is making about $90,000 a year with just that model no well, cool. that's great right? Right, incredible. and that's 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 more money than I make. So you know, fuck him, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Asshole. <laughs> yeah, but it's it's if you just have it if if you have enough students and enough groups, then that works. 
Um, right. You kind of try to create a franchise and then become the master instructor to... Nah, it's, it's not a franchise, right? Franchises don't really fit with historical martial arts. It's a cultural mismatch. It's not a franchise because the people who are running the clubs are not trying to run a business and they are not... Right. You know, they're not, right. What they're doing is they are, they are wanting to run a club and they realize that it's better to have someone else do a lot of the teaching and so they, they're paying you to do that. Right. right. That's not a franchise. Right. Um, and then, of course, the kind of the last piece of the puzzle is, well, there's no job security in that. Right. Yeah. So for job security, ideally, you want to be producing scalable assets such as books or online courses. Right. Or mm-hmm. simply, if you make enough money for long enough and you save enough of it in, you know, uh, investment accounts, right? You can, in fact, after 10 years or so, if you can live off half your income and you can invest the other half for 10 years, right. by the end of that 10 years, you probably have enough money just to live off what those investments will give you. Okay. If you do it, if you do it sensibly, you don't start chasing after unicorns or whatever, right? So you just have to make sure that there are income streams coming in so that if you break a leg and can't teach or drive, if you're going from place to place for three months or six months or whatever, that's okay because you can live off this other money. Cool. Uh, so like my books and online courses are actually, since the pandemic, my books and online courses are about 90% of my income. Wow. Yeah. Wow. So you can make a living and not have to leave Ipswich. I like leaving Ipswich actually. Oh, do you? <laughs> oh, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the <laughs> thing, is, thing is, my absolute favorite thing to do is to be in a room full of students. Okay. Right, that is, it's, it's my favorite thing to do that I'm willing to talk about on your podcast, put it that way. Okay. Right? It's, <laughs> <laughs> it took me a sec to catch what you're talking about there, that's good. <laughs> right? So, so, because it, it, it's, it's where the art comes alive. Sure, yes. Right? And it's where I, where I have access to my best self. Right? It's, it's, it's magic. Right? right. So, yeah. but, you know, <clears throat> I'm, now I don't have to, make a you know make my living from students in class paying me i do quite a lot of these sort of seminars and whatnot for less than i was getting paid before because i don't actually care and i look at it as like a book marketing tour maybe right um sure. well that's how i justify it to my wife anyway <laughs> <laughs> that's the important um, thing yeah yeah the big sell yeah. um yeah or or i you know or you know in, in cases where you know, the club is too young or too small or whatever that they can't, they can't really pay me anything close to what I would normally charge. I have them give money to a charity of my choice, right? So they collect maybe, you know, 10 bucks on the door and there's about seven people and no, I, that's not what I charge for an evening. No. Um, and I'd rather get not get paid than get paid a derisorily small amount. Right. Um, but... I'm quite happy to do what I really like doing for a few hours and benefit this charity that I care about. Sure. Right. That makes sense. Um, yeah. So, okay. you cool. know. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah, that was... I mean, I mean, we, we, we can get into the business side of stuff as much as you want. I, I'm not shy about it. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, that's it's really awesome. Yeah, that's it's great. And I think the people who are listening in will, will appreciate, you know, just understanding the steps involved and how that yeah goes. but i mean the really the critical thing is if 
it is very difficult to make. I mean, it took me 20 years of doing this full time mm -hmm. to get to the point where I wouldn't be better off as a, I don't know, a lecturer at university, financially speaking. Well, that's, I mean, yeah. Right. <laughs> being a, yeah, being a university professor is a, is a pretty sweet gig. <laughs> right. Well, no, no, you actually, not really. I, I, said, right. I said lecturer. I said lecturer, oh. not professor. Oh, just a lecturer. Right? Yeah, 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 a lecturer, oh, wow. not a professor. Okay. I know. Right. Being a, I would probably still be better off if I was a professor, except I'd hate it. So, no, I'd be worse off okay. psychologically. But, but you, know, you know, we have a reasonably nice house and, you know, my children, we can go on holiday once a year and that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's yeah. Normal yeah, life. reasonable. Yeah, exactly. Normal life. But it took me about 20 years to get there. Wow. Okay. Hmm. It's a good thing that I started young. Yes. yes. Right? Yeah. Young and, and not ever having had a proper salary. Right. <laughs> right. No expectations. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's always better to start things when you're young and dumb and then learn as you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, All right. I think we're going to segue over into uh, some more technical questions now. Okay. Um, so uh, now you're talking about at the very beginning and you were introduced to McBain and, and Silver, uh, yeah. among some other things. What drew you more to the Italian sources than to the British or later to German sources? Okay. Um, the English language sources that are really – useful don't really start until silver and i'm not a huge fan of silver i mean no disrespect to silver practitioners and i did produce like an audiobook of paradoxes of defense i you mean did. i like it yeah that much. it's it's nice. really good I, I enjoy it yeah oh thank you good yeah. did, did you like the um the original pronunciation one i like both yeah yeah I, I was i was so pleased to get ben crystal for that he's amazing and yeah just, he really was it's, it was it sounds incredible. like george silver is reading to you it's like amazing yeah. anyway but it's not a terribly easy treatise to actually get a historical fencing system from because he doesn't really discuss much in the way of techniques or specifics. Okay. Um, and the later stuff is all small sword, back sword, whatever, which I love. My first love as a historical martial artist was small sword, right? Um, and, you know, like Harry Angelo's translation of his father's um, the School of Fencing being a good example. 1787 was the translation, 1763 was the original French. Um, but I'm really more of a, it felt a bit too close to fencing to me. Right. And I like, I like the martial artiness of like kicking people and throwing them on the ground. Right. right. That's, that to artiness. me feels, yeah, that, that, that's, that's just, when I think martial arts, I, I think, right. you know, kick them in the nuts and throw them on the ground. I don't Absolutely. think do an elegant volta. Right. right? Coming not from that it's not a martial art. It's a just tremendous amount of time in Kansas doing a wrestling thing with right, Jess Finley. Exactly. I, mean, I mean, yeah, I mean, it makes perfect sense. Yeah. So, um, so that attracted me to the medieval sources. And the thing is, I grew up partly in Peru, so I speak Spanish. I did five years of Latin at school okay. without wanting to, but that's, that was imposed upon me. Um, at, at secondary school, I did um, Spanish and also some Italian. And at university doing English lit, we'd also covered Dante in the original Italian. So I actually had enough of a background that I could approach Italian language sources once I could find a copy I could actually read. But I have never had any kind of background in German. And to my mind, if you're a professional instructor, 
you should be working with the original source in the original language. For the same reason, if I was a professor of Russian literature, but I couldn't read Russian, right? You wouldn't. You, it just wouldn't seem like why? Why would they give him that job? <laughs> couldn't you know? they find it somebody does, else? They, right. Couldn't they find someone who would actually read the book? Right. Um, I, that's absolutely not to cast shade on people who are working with translations. There's nothing wrong with translations. They're extremely useful. I use them myself, even with sources that I can read in the original, uh, because it's interesting to see how someone else has translated a phrase. And you might go, oh, well, that's clearly wrong. Or you might go, oh, actually, that's a different way of reading that aloud, which gives a different phrasing to it, which maybe... So worst case, it's, oh, God, no, don't bother with it. Best case, it gives you some really interesting insight into how to read the text yourself, right? So right. no disrespect to translators and no disrespect to people who depend on translations. But this is my actual job, right? Right? People pay me to teach them my interpretation of Fiore, not my interpretation of Tom Leone's translation of Fiore, right? That's right. So um, I haven't got into the German stuff precisely for the reason that I don't read German. I mean, I've read the translations and I've looked at the manuscripts and I have just, anyway, I went to Kansas, as you just said, and I spent five days training with Jessica Finley, two days shooting Abrazari stuff. And we also spent a bunch of time working on her longsword material, right. her German longsword material, right? And you know, I've had German longsword practitioners from all over the place in my salon in Helsinki teaching seminars, but I'm not gonna teach someone else's interpretation and I'm not going to teach someone else's, or my interpretation based on someone else's translation. It doesn't seem to me yeah. to be in keeping with how I view being a professional. Right. If you're going to be doing it for a living, then you should be rooted in the original source. I, I feel that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. I'm sure there are, there, there are probably people who are making... Yeah, who may be doing a fantastic job as historical martial arts instructors and making a living doing it, who are working from translations. It's not that you can't be a good instructor doing it. It's just, I don't think it's, I know, it's, if your interpretation is based on someone else's work, it's not yours. Right. You know the I mean? Translation is, the, I personally feel, is the more useful day-to-day -to -day tool to use, but it's important to have the skill to be able to reference it Depending on the source. So I think in, in the case yeah. of Fury, there's not a there's just not a lot of words there to deal with. There's pictures which yeah. I say makes life a thousand easier. words, right? But if you're doing Morozzo, it's kinda of hard <laughs> to do that yeah. <laughs> in the original Italian unless you basically want to spend your days like that's your primary concern is the language. So yeah, it, sure. It does and depend and, on and the source. But even though if I if I was teaching Bolognese stuff professionally, yeah. I would be I would be reading from Marozzo's original. Okay. I would have to. I would have to. I would have to base my interpretation on one of these Italian sources or sure. several of them. And yeah. like you know, I, I, I'm I'm happy to teach a seminar on on Vigiani's Schermo. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, it's dead simple. It's dead short. But yeah, that's all text. I mean, there are the pictures of the guards, and that's it. Right. Right. Oh, and the Tree of Blows and the Tree of Guards, which is fantastic but, mnemonics. Schermo's by nature is is very simple. Yeah. Sure. Um, and I, generally speaking, don't teach interpretations of purely text-based sources. Now I think of it, I'd never really thought about this before, okay. but all of the work that I've published has, is based on treatises that have illustrations, and all of the systems that I teach. Actually, no, maybe 
Roeth Saber stuff. I don't, that's not really illustrated in any meaningful way. Um, yeah. So that may be the exception. But generally, yeah, the treatises I work with tend to have illustrations because it just makes life a damn sight easier. It, it does, absolutely. All right, so speaking of pictures and yeah. words, uh, one yeah. of the sources I think you're familiar with is a guy named Filippo Vadi. Have you heard of him? Uh, yeah, he was some Italian dude, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Phil Vadi, I think, was his name. <laughs> um, yeah. The Arte Gladiatore de Micandi, yes. The Art of yeah. Sword Fighting in Ernest. That's See, he one. knows what we're talking about. Right. I would hope so, yeah. Okay. So uh, one of the things that struck me when I was reading it as a Bolognese guy mm-hmm. uh, is he advises us, if I remember correctly, to make the parries to the inside with the true edge and the parries to the outside with the false edge. And that right. seems to kind of accord a lot with certainly the early Bolognese masters. Now we see... Um, over the course of the 16th century, so the 1500s, uh, a transition away from using the false edge to cover the outside line uh, and instead using the true edge to parry to both sides. Do you have an opinion as to why you think that is? I have a lot of opinions. Um, oh, great. Now, I, 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 need, I need your permission to be a really pedantic asshole. Absolutely. Granted. Okay, it's fine. All right. Firstly, Vadi does not say to parry to the inside with the true edge and parry to the outside with the false edge. He doesn't say that. What he says is blows from the forehand side are done with the true edge and blows from the backhand side are done with the false edge, except for the fendente, which is done with the true edge. Okay. Right. That's his, his general. I mean, there are exceptions, but that's the general instruction. Now, the parries are blows, and therefore it is reasonable to say that a parry from below or from the side being done from the forehand side, or indeed from above, from the forehand side, will be done with a true edge, and a parry from the backhand side would be done true edge from above with a fendente, or would be done false edge from the side or from below, okay? Mm -hmm. So... Let's be really specific about what Vadi actually says. Thank you. Okay. Right? <laughs> Cause, yeah. Because it, if you allow slippage, it, it can become sure. very unclear very Absolutely. quickly what's going yeah. on. We're all into the details. Okay. This is great. Excellent. All right. So, um, are you familiar with the concept of the axis of defense? Uh, maybe. Okay. Generally speaking, if we look at a small sword treatise, Angelo, for example, the parries are done... True edge or true edge to the inside, true edge to the outside, or true edge to the inside, false edge to the outside. But it's very much a lateral motion. Okay. Yeah. Right? It's left to right and it travels four inches. He says so in the book. I love Angela. Right? Okay. Now, That's nice. Yeah. But if we look at what's going on before the small sword period, you're normally instructed to get on top of the sword. Mm-hmm. Yeah? You're on yep. top of the sword. And if you are on top of the sword, obviously you want to be doing that with the true edge because it keeps your point in line. If you're on top of the sword with a false edge, it takes your point out of line. Okay. Okay. Now, Cabafero explicitly tells us in plate seven that um, when C, who has been stringered, if they were a clever person, would have disengaged by way of a feint and D, coming confidently to strike in seconda through their left eye, C would parry with the true edge and thrust or with the false edge and cut. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so he's doing both, and he's doing the very first time you see a Paleoneropost in two tempi in Capoferrus treatise, it's there in plate seven, and it's he's explicitly tells you true edge or false edge, right to the outside. Okay, okay? so we're seeing both. Now, if you look at Vigiani from 1550, he wrote it about 1551, published 1575. Right. He bases his whole scaramo on this true edge rising blow from the left, which is, of course, analogous to and similar to Fiore's place of the sword in one hand, where you have right. that same sort of starting position yep. and that same kind of parry with the true edge. Um, so that is a rising blow from below done with the true edge. We see the same thing at the end of Capoferra in his secure way to defend yourself against all sorts of blows where you lie in a low quarter and somebody comes to thrust over the top, you go to prima, which is true edge up, and thrust, which is yep. similar to the parry that you see in at the end of plate seven, where you have the counter to the play that's shown in the, in the plate. Okay? Yep. So, you, so it, for Bolognese terms, you go into unicorn guard and then thrust from there. Fine. So, generally speaking, I would say that... This turn to Seconda, which is really what you're talking about, I think. Right. Um, like, if you were, if you're just, if you're parrying and striking, Cavaferro himself might well agree with you using the false edge if you want to cut. But if you want to thrust, it is faster to keep your point in line. And you accomplish that better by turning the hand over and taking it with the true edge. Okay. It keeps the point in line and it creates a reasonably strong structure. But as you know, we banged on a while ago about how difficult it is for most people to do seconda properly. Mm-hmm. Right. So it, right. so it is, it is based on a couple of things. Primarily, that parry is being done explicitly stated in the text. It's being done with my forte against your debole. Right. So I have a huge leverage advantage. All I have to do is push you offline and I have my point in presence and I can strike. And that makes sense with rapiers. It makes a lot less sense if you're doing blows and if you're planning to follow up with a cut, you'd want to use the false edge. Okay. Yeah? So the reason that you don't see it so much in the Bolognese is this parry with the true edge to the outside is I think because it's mostly dealing with this this intention to cut afterwards not always Um, but then if you go to later um, treatises like for example Roeth with the the backsword or saber all the parries are done with the true edge right and this turn inside to outside is a huge part of the whole system and I think the the aversion to that action, we do see it in the Bolognese, so correct me if I'm wrong, we do see it in the Bolognese, it does exist, it's just not preferred. The, um, are you, are you I, talking about the true edge parry? Yeah, true edge parry to the outside. Yeah, it's in the Anonimo, uh, it's in his Porta de Ferro defenses in play right. like 12 or 13, yeah. Right, so we do see it, uh-huh. it's just not preferred because the parry with the false edge is easier with a cutting sword. Uh-huh. Um, but then with the sabre, we're not seeing that, and I think that could be because the sabre is likely to be curved. It changes the mechanics of how the blades meet. Right, yes. The false um, edge on the sabre is pretty bad at parrying. Yeah, Yeah. so, well, it, it does work if you do it just right, but you have to do it just right. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, okay. but then again, with the longsword, 
we don't see true edge parries to the outside. Sorry, yeah, to the outside, um, generally speaking, um, because that crossing of the arms is awkward, hmm. right? Okay. It makes a lot more sense with one hand on the sword, and it makes even more sense if that hand is protected. That's what I was thinking, because it looks like your hand is vulnerable as you make that transition right. to parry, that it'd be easy to kind of come around and poke the hand. Yeah, and a lot of, a lot of Bolognese stuff is done with basically an open-hilted sword with maybe a ring, uh, right. a, a finger ring, and maybe a side ring, and maybe a, a knuckle bow if you're lucky. Right. Right? I, I mean, there and are follow-ups. Just... Sorry. Yeah, go ahead. There, there are a lot of follow-ups with a thrust on that, but I, I think it's also... I think it's based on the mechanic of the way that the Bolognese authors use that falso. Because that falso typically ends in Gordia de Faccia. And when you create your structure in Gordia de Faccia, um, you know, like if I'm, if I'm kind of giving a structured parry, my hand will be here. And you can see the angle of my hand that, I mean, the viewers can't, but the angle of my hand is going to create kind of a, a, like a, an angle off to the side a little bit. Yeah, um, the point right? the is taken offline. Yeah. Right. It's very slightly, but it, all it is is just a, a half turn of the hand to get it back online. Right. So sure. I just turned from, you, from you palm You can up, do a rising down. parry with the false edge and drop the point in. And Fiori shows that. Right. Right. We yeah, have, absolutely. We have that, yeah. we have that sure. in, in you know, parrying from that Dijingaro and then coming in, wrapping the person up and stabbing them with a thrust. I mean, there's that same turn of the hand. It's not that you can't do it. Um, it's that... See, Honestly, I would have to go back and have a look at the Bolognese sources because I'm not mm -hmm. so sure that that it's as missing as it seems to be, For right? the, or as the unusual as it seems to be. Yeah, well, I, because I also anytime just... anytime you parry with a with a reversal fendente, it's truish to the outside. Right, right. right. I mean that's that's, and that's how you form some of the that guard. Which, which one do you call it? Um, Colonga Strata. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, like I mean, we've got with a reversal. We've got a few few examples. I, I think it's a lot of it comes from like uh, an emphasis on like when you're fighting with sword alone, um, in particular, right? That's a lot of the material that people will engage with. If you look at Man Manciolino from Porta de Ferro Stretta, doing a rising falso into your opponent's sword, turning the hand and driving a thrust. That's that's one of his sure. primary plays, and he primarily defends with the false edge right i mean that's basically his if you're fighting with sword alone you're in Porto de ferro and defending with the false edge um Maranzo right. gives a similar progression um in that in his abatamente de espada solo you are your uh his uh fourth section uh after you've done your your thrust defenses uh, he gives a similar setup where you're being offensive um stepping from Cotolonga alta to Porta de Ferro Strata, you're doing that rising falso, and he says the swords bite, and then you're driving yeah. that thrust. And it's a it's a mechanic, in my opinion, um, it's a mechanic that's really meant more as a safe entering technique rather than just sure. like a kind of a gotcha thing, you know. And so maybe right. maybe that's maybe that's what this is. Is it's not a it's not a you know I, I hate. It's not a single tempo action, but you know, a lot of times in, that, in the KDF tradition. That's where tradition. I was going. <laughs> that's where I was going. It's like when Cabo in plate seven, with the true edge, you can parry and thrust in one motion. And thrust and with the false motion. edge, right. you parry and cut in two motions. Right. Yeah. I mean, you can also parry and thrust in two motions, but um, in plate seven, like all of the all of those 
placed on um, where you string on the inside and then back on the outside, that turn of the hand is supposed to be a parry and thrust, as he says, in un solo tempo, in yeah, motion. Yeah, almost like... Yeah, almost like the contra-tempo thrust that we give a lot of times with, like, Gordia de Faccia. Yeah, and which, which you do with a small sword, with both the true edge and the false edge, because with a small sword, you can angulate the wrist, because it's a much lighter weapon, uh-huh. right? You wouldn't want to do that with a rapier, because you might break something. Right. Yeah. That's a lot of stress. So, yeah, so, I mean, I, th- I think that's really what's going on. It's, 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 if, you're, if you're on top of the sword... If you're thinking of it as being on top, you want to have true edge coming down. If you're coming from below, from the reversal side, it's probably false edge or could be true edge too. But if you have the false edge leading and you want it to thrust, it's always going to be two tempi. You can't really do a false edge parry and thrust in a single tempo. So it might yeah. be reasonable to say that the Bolognese art is one with is a two tempi art with some single tempi counterattacks, and Rapier is a single tempi art with some Dewey tempi parry and riposte. Oh, we're straying into dangerous territory. <laughs> Very dangerous territory. Because 20 odd years ago, there was this great long thing about how longsword and rapier are. Uh, Stesso tempo weapons or solo tempo weapons, mm-hmm. and and oh. um, and and other things were like Dewey tempi weapons, and it was basically a bunch of people who couldn't read Italian, including me at the time, um, just basically making, shall we say, sweeping statements about things right. that weren't that weren't serving the students' needs. Should we put it that way? Yeah. yeah. And the difference no, I mean, between a single tempi action and a Dewey tempi action isn't, in my experience at least, nowhere near as large as people want to believe it is. Oh, I, <laughs> yeah, it kind of depends on the how big the Dewey tempi is. But yes, a Dewey tempi action can be lightning quick. Yeah. So what do you think about, like, uh, I guess this kind of brings us back towards, like, Fiore and Vadi. You know, I, I feel like um, one of the things that's, at least unique among uh, most Italian sources, especially the early Italian sources, is that we have a clear definition. Well, it, in my opinion, it exists in KDF, but it's hard to get KDF people to actually like adhere to this and believe in this because you have the Zufecten, you have the Krieg, and then you have um, Ring and Emschwert, right? Which is like yeah. when you're wrestling at the sword. Um, yeah. I, and Jess is a huge proponent of this, so I, I have a lot of appreciation for her interpretation of this. Um, but in the Italian sources, I, perhaps just because it's more clear. And so you being a Fiore master and, and really kind of understanding Fiore. I, I dispute the master bit, but okay, should we well, say, right. should we say I've, I've, I've been working on him for a while now. A long time, right? More than 10 years. So uh, more than 20 years, but yeah, more than 20 years, which, which probably means that you're the closest to a master that we have living. Right. So, um, uh, skip ahead, skip ahead. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> so, um, the, the idea of a progressive attempt of trying to control your opponent's sword, you know, if you look at the Larga material that you have for Fiore, a lot of the actions that you see are about creating, opportunities for you to control your opponent's sword as you pursue Mezzaspada. And or, or at mm. least like try to come in so that way you can get into the safe places where you're you're getting close. I'm not sure I understand that. <coughs> so um you know 
rather than rather than uh, focusing specifically on a lot of like single tempo actions, right? Um, where you know, well, Fury yeah. doesn't discuss single or two tempi actions. At sure, all. sure, yeah, no, 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 for, definitely not, right? But I'm, I'm talking about like from a from a KDF perspective, there's a lot of emphasis on um, you know whether or not the master cut should be you know single tempo attempts at just kind of like putting your opponent behind in the vor, right? They're really <laughs> they're the the catch all. Honestly, kind of honestly, yeah, people fuss about this stuff far too much. It's not that complicated, right? You have your opponent in front of you, and your job is really simple. You've got to control their weapon and then hit them. That's it. Yeah, yeah, right? and hit them all safely, of, all right? Of, all, of the re- yeah, all of the rest of it, well, you control their weapon and right. then hit, right? Yeah. And, and so, for example, Fiore describes in, in the Guard Apostolonga, it's good for tasting the guards, mm-hmm. right? So if your opponent's in the guard position, their sword is dangerous. It's not under your control. We see the same thing in 133, where you have someone in a, in a guard and you beset that guard with one or other besetments, obsessio is the Latin term. And as they leave their guard to bind your sword and get control of your sword and do something, you have forced them into that motion. And that gives you the opportunity to get control of their sword, usually with a bind, the gassio, right. and enter with usually something like a shield slack or shield strike. Okay? Right. Fury has the same sort of thing going on. You, you throw the the blow into Postalonga such that they are forced to leave their guard. They're going to parry one way or another. Okay. And if you parry and you have the chance to strike, you take it. As we see in, for example, the second player, the second master of the Zogalaga who crosses at the middle of the swords. Um, and if you end up with the blade stuck together, you enter into some other way. And if you are the attacker and your opponent defends, you have the counter remedies. And if you are the defender, you have ways of getting control of their sword with your parry that allows you to strike safely in, well, there are 20 players of the Zogolarva, 23 of the Zogostrato in the Getty manuscript at least. Um, it's, it's not complicated. Right. Um, it's just, I, I, this... There's this notion in historical martial arts circles these days of somehow seeking the bind or seeking to be at the mezzaspada, right? Which makes no sense at all because your job in a sword fight is not to get into an advantageous bind. It's to hit the fucker, right, without getting hit. And you don't do that by getting into a bind where you're sort of binding with each other and going blah, 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 blah. You get into that by forcing them into an action, right, or luring them into an action, you can do either. But the thing is, they're acting because you have created the tempo for it. And then that gives you the opportunity to control their sword, after which you strike. And when the blades meet, lots of different things can happen, right? You might beat their sword into next week and hit them. Right. More, pro- more probably, um, you will at least stop their attack, or maybe you can grab their blade and hit them. Or maybe you're, they are attacking with overwhelming force, in which case you make the parry not expecting it to stop their sword and let the sword run off to the side and you strike them on the other side, as in the Copa de Villano, which is the fifth and sixth players of the second master of the Zogolara who crosses in the middle of the swords. Um, or maybe as you parry, they cut for your leg, so you slip the leg and hit them in the head. That's the seventh play. Or the blades come together and things happen and there's no clear strike. So you boot them in the nuts. That's the eighth play. So their cover will falter and then you can strike them. And, right. you know, and so on and so on and so it goes. So um, it's, it's about having this clear idea of tasting the guard 
to force them into making some action that you can predict so that you can bind their sword so you can hit them. It's right. And, and I think, so I think we're, we're speaking at the same thing from two different ends and that I think that both of the, the approaches that we're talking about really achieve, seek to achieve the same thing. And that is just a level of control. I think the, the, the approach that I was coming at it is more from a perspective of, especially as, um, you know, in, in the HEMA tournament scene in general, most fencing is <laughs> okay. really, really bad. All right. HEMA tournament scene is its own special thing. It is. Which has no yeah. direct bearing on the historical side of things at all. No, no, no. Why not even have not. an indirect right? bearing on it? And, 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 the, okay, before we say anything else, I should just put on record that I am wholly in favor of the tournament scene. It provides a fantastic opportunity for fencers to go and get necessary tournament experience, which will teach them all sorts of things they can't learn anywhere else. And it also provides this fantastic focal point that draws people in, because people understand the idea of tournaments more than they understand the idea of martial arts classes. And they go, oh, right, that's tournaments. And then from the tournament scene come all sorts of people who go, actually, that's not really what I'm looking for. But, oh, there's all these people who do sword stuff closer to what I'm looking for. And it provides this sort of draw for them and it creates the economic conditions which allows for the development of all sorts of equipment that we simply didn't have I mean, one thing that maybe hasn't come up you, know, you guys probably don't remember is that it wasn't until maybe 2005 that it was relatively straightforward to get a training longsword that actually worked right now you can go online and there are loads and loads of really good manufacturers who will make beautiful swords and you'll get them in a reasonable time frame and that just was not the case even in 2005 hmm. right so things have moved on a huge amount and a large driver of that is the tournament scene we would not be where we are without right. it but an awful lot of what happens in tournaments is as you would expect crap fencing because that's what happens when people get put under pressure their skill set deteriorates right you go to your lowest common denominator yeah, you descend yeah. to the level of your training. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So th now that's on the record. So the people who like tournaments who are listening to this aren't going to get cross at me. <laughs> Please continue. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I think that uh, in, in general, um, because of the nature of tournaments, I think that and whether it has no bearing or not, I guess what I'm, I'm trying to convey is that in order to take something as a historical approach in defensing. I think that sometimes if people emphasize tournaments a lot in their training, right? This isn't necessarily my perspective, but if people emphasize training their the tournaments a lot, which is is a, a movement, right? There's a, a big yeah, sure. movement towards that. And there's nothing wrong with that. I did that for the first eight sure. years of my fencing life because sport fencing is all about the tournament. Right, exactly. So, you know, I, I, a lot of people are going to kind of take that perspective. And as they're doing that, rather than, you know, adapting to what works and strictly in tournament, I think that there is a historical approach to how to deal with opponents who are basically relying on their their the least common denominator of their training. So they're, of course, they're absolutely. kind of falling back on that training and, and dealing with you know, like Giganti tells you that uh, once you've been training in the South for years and you have uh, achieved a certain level of proficiency, 
He says that you should go out in, a, in the street and fight somebody who has absolutely no training. <laughs> That's dangerous. Right? That's really exactly. Dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous, right? Because you're so used to making small parries. You know, like Paladini says the same thing. He says, you know, he, he criticizes Agrippa for Agrippa's like, you know, pinpoint measurement in the way that he teaches yeah. fencing. And he says that it's, it's a flaw. You're inherently teaching a flaw into your students because in a pressure situation, you are not going to make that fine parry. You're going to make exactly. the parry that works, which is generally going to be a bigger tempo. And then they're going to uncover themselves because they're going to do something unnatural. Right. Yeah. Vigiani said the same thing. Like, you know, right. And that's why. Spada yeah. Mara, there's spade swords. Don't don't train with those things. Use sharp swords so you'll actually parry properly. Um, right. And, and Aldo Nadi, probably the greatest sport fencer of all time ever. Oh, right. Yeah. He was so good. They didn't want him to fence in the Olympics. But when somebody won an Olympic gold medal, they might get a demonstration bout with him and they would agree beforehand that he would let them hit him at least twice. He was that good. He was insanely <laughs> oh <my God>. good. <laughs> right? <clears throat> right? Wow. Right. Okay. He did fight a duel with a newspaper editor who he disagreed with. And this completely untrained fencer was up against the greatest fencer of all time. Okay. And first blood went to the newspaper editor. No way. Wow. Right? All the other hits went to Aldo. And, he, you know, he, he poked lots of little holes, not very deep holes, but lots of little holes in his opponent until they were both satisfied that they'd satisfied their honor. And off they went to the pub or whatever. I forget the rest of the story. But the thing is, Aldo Nadi himself got bled in his first and only duel against a complete beginner because he was used to, as he said, fencing is a sport of skill, not kill. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Right. Yeah, yeah. That's how he put it in his in his biography. Right. No, that's so, not, that's perfect. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you would expect stuff to kind of go to shit a bit, which is why you know all of the parries and things we see in Fury are sort of solid, simple, straightforward. There, there's there isn't. I don't think there's a lot of room for nuance. Like you, know, you see it in 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 some traditional I'm putting air quotes in traditional martial arts stuff where you know um, you do this special pressure point thing or whatever and the person falls down and then you try it on someone who's actually trying to hit you and they don't fall down and it's very embarrassing and annoying um, because oh well yes because maybe it was a Tuesday or you know I mean there's always reasons why the technique will fail but right. if the technique if that if the t- technique requires a really specific setup is useless. Yeah, right. because that setup right. will almost never occur. Right. It needs to be able to be done in a situation of great mental stress and physical yeah. stress. Yeah. And again, I think every historical fencing instructor should read Epe 2.0, although he's now produced Epe 2.5 by Johan Harmenberg, who won Olympic gold medals in Epe in the late 70s, early 80s. Um, I think it was 1982 Olympics where he won the team gold and the individual gold for in Epe. I mean, he's he's a seriously world-class fencer, and <clears throat> he's the guy who ruined fencing by introducing all this jumpy, jumpy, bouncy, bouncy shit. Uh-huh. Um, but if you read the book, it explains what he did was he looked at the rule set and looked at the equipment and figured out how somebody with his particular attributes right. could win in those conditions. Right? He and he took it he took it so seriously that okay the Swedish team won the gold medal for the, the team 
And this the sil- the gold silver final was between him and one of his teammates. And every time in practice, he'd fenced his teammate a particular way. In the actual Olympic final, he knew it was almost certainly going to be one of his teammates who he was going to be fighting for the gold. So in his entire training leading up to that match, he fenced them differently in training. So in that final, wow. he wow. had a different set of things to do. Right, he 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 fenced differently, and his, and his his teammate was like, "You didn't fence like that in practice." He said, "Well, that wasn't practice." Right? <laughs> I mean, it's 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 a fantastic insight into the into how the sport of fencing can be done at the very highest level, right? And yeah. I think that applies to all the tournament stuff, and it's really useful, even if you don't want to do tournament stuff. It's really useful right. to do that to understand how the rule sets and the equipment requirements and everything will affect what actually wins and how a serious competitor should be if they're if they're in it to win they should be playing the rules right not just playing by the rules but playing the rules if they are in it to develop their martial skills they should barely even look at the rules except not do any of the illegal stuff and just try and not get hit and hit the other person and they're almost certainly not going to win because there's stuff in the rules that lets you do certain things or, or like, you know, I lost any interest I had in ever doing a, one of these standard longsword tournament things because they mostly don't allow pommel strikes. And I'm a fury f- fencer. I mean, I'm not going to go into an environment where I'm not allowed to do a pommel strike. It's like, right. it's like not allowing me to use a sword at all. <laughs> right. 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 <laughs> yeah. right. You're not allowed like to a, use the true edge. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's not a game I'm, I'm particularly interested in playing because it would require me to go back to the 80s and do my sport fencing stuff. Right. 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 And the reason I got into historical martial arts is because I was fed up with sport fencing. Still right. am. Yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Yeah, we have a, a very re- u- unique rule set for what we do for our tournament that we host, which we just had this past weekend, and that we do allow grappling uh, to a certain sure. extent. And, you know, all, all targets or all, all means of, of striking are relatively legal. The only two things I think mm-hmm. that we've um, cut out are Geislings and the Serpentina. Sorry, Guy. Um, <laughs> so that's That's it. all right. <laughs> yeah. So What do you mean by the Serpentina? But, like the serpentina thrust, the offhand thrust. So any offhand strikes uh, with the the what do you mean? sword. Uh, like oh, uh, what you mean where you're holding yeah strike with the pommel? Yeah, exactly. The pommel. That's it. You call that a serpentina? Where does that come from? I don't remember, honestly. Okay, all right. Because I actually let me tell you a story about that particular thrust. Sure. Right. Fiore has it, but before I'd even really gotten into working with Fiore. Um, we found Degrassi and there's a terrible translation of Degrassi that was done in about 1590, maybe mm-hmm. 1595, I think. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And Degrassi's original was in like 1570. I may be getting the date slightly wrong, but it's around there. And he has a section on the two-handed sword and he has this, you let go with your sword hand and you thrust holding it by the pommels, you get a really long thrust. And I was chatting with my friend Martin and I was like, yeah, but you really shouldn't do that. That's a really stupid idea because if you get parried, you lose control of the sword. Blah, blah, blah. So anyway, a little while later, I'm fencing with Martin and he fucking hits me with it. Like, oh. <laughs> 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 a little less in, in, yeah, in, in the book is probably right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, but I can see how you would disallow it because it's difficult to control. Um, if, it, if the students aren't trained to do it, it's a bit of a Hail Mary if they're not trained for it. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, it's, it's a different thing. I mean, the, the rule sets I've used in tournaments in, in my style are very different because it's a controlled environment and I pretty much know everyone who's coming. Right. And so right. most people are trained in a sort of similar way. Yes, we do invite other people in and everything, but it's, it's, it's not one of these great big open events where you get people from all over the world coming in from all sorts of different backgrounds with all sorts of different expectations and stuff where the rule set has to keep everyone safe. Right. right? right. You, you, can, you can play with things a lot more when you have more control over the environment. Yeah, that's definitely true. Yeah, I agree. Um, so I'm going to have to get going pretty soon. Can we uh, run through a couple more questions real fast here? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Get to the end. All right. So uh, one of the things that we do on our podcast is looking at historical examples of actual sword fights, you know, what people were yeah. doing. Uh, so we have some data to work with. Uh, it came across curious uh, fight that happened at a wedding in 1487 in Bologna. Uh, not a fight, but a, a, a melee tournament, essentially, uh, for fun. So there multiple opponents all fight yeah, each other at the same time? Okay. Basically, like, multiple teams, I guess, all fighting each other. Um, and what's interesting from a HEMA perspective is we have... Um, Ercole d'Este was there with his guys. He Ercole d'Este was the Duke of Ferrara, so he was yeah. the son Nicolo's of Niccolo. That's right. His old, oldest son, born in about 1430? Something, something like, like yeah, that's right. That's so right. after Fiore was probably dead. After Fiore was dead, but certainly he had but ample his opportunity was... to look at the books. Yeah, his for sure. His father was a huge fan of Fiore, right? Five cars. As far as we know. We can yeah. assume yeah. that there was some Fiore influence there at the sure. training at the Duke of Ferrara. Uh, at that wedding, we also have Guidobaldo Montefeltre, who was the the person patron, Vadi wrote perhaps, his book for. But the, right, the person yeah. whom Vadi wrote his book for. Also fighting at the tournament was Galeazzo San Severino, who was the um, the muse, I guess, and and most famous student of Pietro Monte. And finally, at that wedding, we have uh, two-year-old little Guido Rangone, who mm -hmm. was um, is the guy to whom Achille Morozzo dedicates his book and was probably Achille Morozzo's patron. So I, I, right. I thought so that like was kind about, of... Yeah, that's, that's very cool. That's like 30-odd years later he, he wrote Right, right. No, maybe, we have maybe 50. All yeah. these guys at this single event, yeah. right? And so this is after the Bolognese school had kind of started developing as a form of martial art as well. So we can say that there are four somewhat interrelated martial arts that uh, kind of took the field here. And uh, apparently the one who gave the best uh, response or, you know, who seemed to have been the best fighter was Galeazzo San Severino. And I was wondering, can we say that this is a, an indication that Pietro Monte was the best teacher or simply and that his <laughs> art is the best or just simply that his student was the most gifted? Ah, uh, that's a... Okay. There's no question that Pietro Monte knew what he was talking about. Right. No question. Um, and there's also no question that uh, by the 1480s, things had changed considerably to how... But, when Fiore was writing 80-odd years before. Right. Right? 
And we're also talking about a melee. Right. So the Bolognese stuff doesn't really deal with melees at all. And also this, this is predating the earliest Bolognese sauce by about 40 years. Right. Give or take. So, yep. so, so it's, it's a stretch to say that there was any Bolognese stuff going on at all. Well, we do have Darty, who rec- was recorded as being a teacher. Prior but was he teaching to this. any of the? But was he teaching any of the people present at this event that early? Uh, that well, we according, know, but probably. So, this was Annabali's wedding, wasn't it? Annabali so This Bentivoglio? is the wedding of Annabali Bentivoglio. So Annabali Bentivoglio. Yeah, Annabali Bentivoglio had spent um, basically the subsequent three or four years prior to this as a courtier of Ercole d'Este in Ferrara. And mm-hmm. Annabale is the one who brought Guido Antonio de Luca to Bologna to start teaching Anasal for the Bentivoglio family. So that's one of the things that we okay. found in Ghiardaki. And his brother, Ercole, um, or his brother, uh, Hermes, uh, actually was knighted by um, Ercole d'Este. So he oh, had done cool. his, his nightly training under Ercole d'Este in Ferrara. And um, that's, that's basically, that's the sal that Guido Rangoni came up in with those two as his sort of, his patrons along with Guido Antonio de Luca. So. Okay, so it's like, it's like the very beginning of the Bolognese. Yeah, I think that, that's it a is, pretty yeah. fair, cool. right. fair assessment, yeah. Okay. Are you familiar with the theory of consilience? No, I don't even know what that word means. Um, I think it comes from Edward O. Wilson, who was a biologist. But basically, there are many ways to make a convincing argument. And Uh like a single incontrovertible piece of evidence can make an argument. Right. Um, You only have to find one two handed Viking sword to disprove the statement that there were no two handed Viking swords. Right. 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 Uh-huh. Okay. But many arguments are made up of lots of small pieces of data, right? Which right. all lead you in, in the same way that fibers in a rope are not individually strong, but when you twist them together correctly, they become incredibly strong. Yep. Right. Yep. Okay. So I would say that if you can find m- sufficient other examples of Pietro Monte's students, being similarly singled out, you have a conciliant argument for suggesting that he was a really good instructor. Now, I like to say that, you know, Galeata de Mantua trounced Marshal Boussico, right, when he fought him in 1395 after Boussico insulted the valour of French knight, uh, of, of Italian knights at a dinner hosted by the King of France, which Galeata was attending at the time. So, obviously, that makes Fiore best nightly teacher which is of course absolute bullshit uh, because <laughs> right. because because while while we have reason to suppose that Galeazzo was indeed there's no reason to not believe that Fiore taught Galeazzo it's almost certain that Fiore did not teach Galeazzo everything that he knew right and it's almost certain that Galeazzo was also a highly gifted knight Right. He really cared about it. He really trained hard. He really, you know, and so was Busuko. These were two of the greatest knights of the period. Right. Right. And they fought and Galeazzo won. But no one would have been surprised if he went the other way. Yeah. Right. Could you right. Get a so, right. so you cannot, you cannot say from that single data point that Fiore is a better teacher than Busuko's teacher. But what you can say is that someone of Galeazzo's stature 
found Fiore worth training under, and that suggests that Fiore was a very good teacher, but he doesn't say anything about Busico's teachers. Right. 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 So I would say, based on the evidence you have presented, um, that Monte... <laughs> well, well, that, that Monte... Okay. There is, there is a data point in service of the argument or to support the argument that Pietro Monte was a very good teacher because he had at least one very good student. Right. Okay? Right. We don't know how much we can attribute to talent or to other training or to luck or whatever else on just that one data point. But when you, can, when you also look at Pietro Monte standing amongst the nobility and his published works and his reputation in his time and where he appears in, if I remember rightly, um, it's one of Machiavelli's books. I think it's The Prince. Um, right. There's good reason to suppose that Pietro Monte was as good as everyone thinks and was marvellous and probably his training really helped that particular person do well on that particular day. But I wouldn't go further than that. Yeah. Sounds like a, a very reasonable and well thought out argument. But of course, I mean, Fiore is the best, and we all know it. Right? Yeah, no, look, see, this is this is my argument, guy, and and I actually, I've been I've been playing around with the idea of really kind of imparting uh, the the concept of stabile and instabile, and and how to uncover your opponent from a fixed guard. Oh no, yep. he's already hands in the okay. hands of fate. Okay, all right, stabile and instabile. They appear in the Getty manuscript as words written next to certain guard positions. Stable, instable, pulsativa. Okay. Mm -hmm. They are not used anywhere else except in the position posta breve. He says it is a stable guard that does not have stability. <laughs> That's what he says. Right. I can dig out the original and quote it to you if you want. Or you can just trust me. I, I don't mind. I trust <clears throat> it's perfectly reasonable. Well, it is, you should really ask for the source because, you know, you shouldn't take anyone's word for anything. You should look at the book. But anyway. Okay. So there is all sorts of discussion about what these terms mean, but there is no data to support any of it other than, well, I think that from this pulsative regard, I can, I can strike in a kind of pulsing manner and therefore <laughs> it's a... That's what it means. Or, or this stable guard, I can stand in for a long time and I don't get tired, but this unstable guard is something that I move through. There's an argument there, right? And it's, a lot of it is perfectly reasonable. We have the same problem with the turns of the sword, where Fiori says he defines the footwork terms, volta stable, uh, mezza volta and tuta volta. Volta stable is with both feet fixed, I can play in front and behind on the same side. Right. Mezza volta is when with a pass forwards or backwards I can play on the other side and a tuta volta is when one foot stays fixed and the other one turns around it. He doesn't specify direction or duration of that turn. Okay? Mm -hmm. And thus I say there are three turns of the sword. Volta stabile, mezza volta and tuta volta. But he never uses the terms anywhere else. And all sorts of Fiore people have all sorts of interpretations as to what those terms are but I don't speculate if there ain't enough data. There are so many questions right. for which we have enough data to make authoritative arguments that the stuff that doesn't have sufficient data to, to state a reasonable opinion, I don't speculate, right? right? Yeah, I wait sure. for more data. I wait for more data and say, so you're, you use the term stable and instable, and they're just the Italian words for stable and unstable. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, if you're using that in a Fiore context, I have to say that you are reasoning outside your data set. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, <laughs> sorry. Carry on. <laughs> no, to, to defend and, and to kind of to kind of build on. I this, told right? you I'm a I told you I'm a pedant, right? No, and, no, no. And you I said mean, I, had, it, I had license to be pedantic, so there we go. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I love it. So, um, maybe. <laughs> I don't want to go too much down that rabbit hole because I think we can have a long conversation about that. But um, that's okay. To keep it where we were, um, you know, one of the things that uh, that Stephen and I found, you're talking about finding threads that kind of help tie something together, and the Fiore influence of, um, or the potential of a Fiore influence in Bolognese tradition, um, is this idea that I don't think that. Stephen and I really view this as a as a Bolognese tradition anymore. I think that we're starting to see it more of a Bentivoglio tradition of fencing, um, and that a lot of a lot of the data points and authors that we have have direct links to the Bentivoglio family and the uh, and the Signoral families in Bologna um, that okay. were linked to the Bentivoglio, so the Bentivoleschi, if you will, which were the factions around the Bentivoglio family. And one of the interesting things was is that um, the first condottieri that was hired by the Bentovoleschi faction was Lancelotto Bacciaria. Okay. Fiore's famed student. After he had trained with Fiore in 1402. Between 1401 and 1402, fighting against Galeazzo de Mantova and Autobono Torzi, and various condottieri from Milan. Um, we have okay. Lancelotto uh, basically operating as the, the first um, sort of um, like head of the Bolognese militia and sort of helping develop the Bolognese militia. So what you're telling me fundamentally is actually Fiore invented the Bolognese style. Well, no. well, more like he was, yeah, he was, was, he was the forerunner from which it was improved upon. Okay. Right. That, exactly. is, that, is, that, is, that is a very interesting data point. That if you can connect this, this very early beginnings of like, sort of, like 100 plus years before the first Bolognese treatise comes mm-hmm. out, yeah. you have a connection between Fiore and this school. The thing is, though, you've also, it's extremely cool. Um, and... I, yes, where have you got it written down? Send me a link to where you've got it written down because like, then I can it I'm, I'm about to, so I've got, right now, I'm working on uh, a paper that I'm going to send for, um, to get checked. So um, I've got a few different people that are going to check it for me uh, overall for factual accuracy. And then it's going to come right. out. And it's about um, Giovanni Bentivoglio. As soon as, as, soon, as soon as it does, send it to me. Um, I will. But, okay. But a lot happened in a century. Uh-huh. Absolutely, and also, yeah. and, and also, the knightly classes of Europe was a, a small subpopulation of a very small population. Right? The total population of Europe at this time was not that much. Right. right. So these people would all tend to know of each other or know each other. And these circles are actually pretty. It's like, I mean, it's like the historical martial arts circle these days i mean i may not know that particular instructor personally but we probably have at least one friend in common you know because that's yes it is a small group that is defined by a certain kind of culture and set of interests and what else so um 
It is, it is a fascinating connection, and I'm very glad to hear that Fiori's students are doing so well. Doesn't surprise <laughs> me, but I'm very glad to hear. Um, well, and I, I think that I think the, the connection, the drawback of the connection, right, is um, later on we see, again, we see Annabale Bentivoglio, Annabale II Bentivoglio, and Hermes Bentivoglio, both sons of Giovanni II Bentivoglio, which would be the third generation after, well, they're the fourth generation, but their father would be the third generation after Giovanni the first, um, going to once the, the Dieste and the Bentivoglio had reconciled their differences, which was, uh, really a result of Giovanni kind of talking it out with, uh, with Ercole Dieste and then deciding that they could find mutual terms. And then them deciding that Annabale was going to marry his daughter. Annabale goes to Ferrara for years as a courtier and trains as a knight, and then Aramis eventually ends up getting trained and knighted by Ercole Dieste, right? So we have a, a direct lineage, like back yeah. to from their knightly training back to Fiore, um, and then That's they start very, the very school. Cool. Yeah, and then they start the school of fencing in Bologna, and what we think is 1496. So leaving Darty out as an art outlier because I haven't quite. I, I think a lot of the a lot of the Darty stuff um, really comes from Jacopo Gelli. And, you know, unfortunately, Jacopo Gelli did a horrible job of citing a lot of the information that he found. Now, to, to say that, we have actually found a lot of the information that Jacopo Gelli gave us to, to validate it. But the problem is yeah. we have all these holes of trying to prove things that he said. And one of the things that he says is that both Darty and De Luca were of the Bentivoglio. They were Bentivoleschi. Um, okay. And so that's, that's what we've been trying to prove and find. And... Um, you know, for the most part, Darty and DeLuca have been relative enigmas. I'm working on that right now. And it's, it's, a, it's a challenge. Um, and to understand whether or not there would be a connection there. We do know that, you know, Darty started a school of fencing in 1412. Um, and he probably would have had to have had some sort of a background. And it probably could have come from the Bolognese militia. There's a chance. And this is all clearly speculation. Um, yeah, that and this it, it would have, have, have been nightly combat. I think so. Which, yes, it would, yeah. it would have to be because, so I would, yeah. because I, I the rise of sort of the you, uh, hang on, well, okay. Let, let me. The average listener probably may not have caught what we just said there. So let me just summarize. Like we think of, should we say, um, like merchants and whatnot fencing for a hobby, and as part of their sort of aspirational, like trying to become a bit more upper class as a 16th century thing. Um, Somebody training in swordsmanship in 1412 is almost certainly training knightly combat or peasantly combat, and there's not a lot of crossover in between. Um, so, so the the way the art changed between 1412 and 1512 is going to be largely um, due to the context in which it's being used, right? Changing over the course of that century as the mercantile classes arose and economics changed and all that sort of thing. I don't. I don't think it was meant for the training of knights. I believe it was meant for teaching people, basically for the preparation of a citizen militia. So training officers uh, okay. to then teach. Well, you're uh, talking about that later. But you're talking about what's going on in the 16th century. You're not talking about no, what's I'm going talking on about in the 1412. I'm talking about in the yeah. 1400s. In the 1400s. Yeah, the, the the walls of cities were manned by city militia. Militia. So oh, okay. Field combat was dominated by condottieri, 
But yeah. the defense of the city and maybe its immediate environs were, uh, I, as far as I can tell, still an immediate concern of infantry. Okay, so the the 1412 stuff we were talking about, you think that was aimed more at militia and less at the knightly classes. Interesting. That's and it's also correct. interesting to note that, that Fiore did command the, I think it was the artillery at the siege of Udine. He yes. Was, he was in Udine commanding. That's yes. why there's a street in Udine named after him. Named after him, yes. Um, so, yeah, there's definitely a lot That's, of crossover. Right. And so I think they probably may, I don't know the correlations. Obviously, we know very little about Darty. Uh, but the costs and what he was teaching seems to be more oriented towards teaching teachers than it is to actually teach knights to fight. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the one statement that we have from, from Darty is basically that fencing is, can be broken down into geometry and that all fencing is geometry. Well, Vadi said that. Darty said that too. And we have no idea if that's... That's the but, one but, quote that but we But Dottie, Dottie didn't write it down in a man- manuscript and, and try and give it to you. <laughs> <laughs> That's Maybe he what did. He, we he, just don't he, have he it. Wrote it down, <laughs> he wrote it down in his petition to the Bolognese government to, uh, okay. uh, yeah. to for his salary and his stipend. What year? What year? Uh, that 14, would have been 1443. 1443. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. okay. Send me the reference. Send me the reference. Oh, yeah. You don't have that? Yeah. No, I don't have that. No, give, send, send me that reference, please. Um, I will. Because, yeah, I mean, just, just flicking through, it's, I think it's Vadi's second chapter of his 16 chapters of the longsword stuff in his treatise where he talks about, I know that's the measure of the two-handed sword. No, it's the first chapter. Part of this, my statement, is a true science, not an art, and geometry which divides and separates by infinite numbers of measures and fills her papers with science, etc., etc., etc. My God, yeah. that's the same. And it, it's worth keeping it's, in it's mind so that Ferrara I mean, not like directly is, the same. Sorry, yeah. I don't want to freak you. And that's, and, that's, and, and Vadi's yeah. book could not have been written before 1482. Correct, yeah. Because right. it's dedicated yeah. to Guido as Duke, and he didn't become Duke until 1482. And it would be very bad form to address him as a Duke when he wasn't. Now, it's possible... It's possible that that introduction got slapped on later. He wrote it 30 years before and then, oh, there's this Duke. He might like uh-huh. this and just right. slapped. Like, like he'd been keeping it in reserve for some Duke that might pop up and want right. the book. But that's not terribly likely. There's no reason to suppose yeah. that the, the first page was written like 30 years after the... After I mean, the it's, the I, I think that Vadi is, does represent at least, and, and you can probably speak to this better than I can, um, an evolution of the fact that Fiore did have a tremendous effect on, especially like the Northern Italian Lords. Like there, it, it, it seems that there was a, a structured pedagogy that existed. Um, and that, that this okay. evolution of that pedagogy over time is what Vadi represents. You see, I would like that to be true. Um, and there are certainly, bits in Vadi's book which seem to be word for word what Fiore says so but then you know if your mum um sings you to sleep with you know Baba Black Sheep and my mum did too that doesn't mean that we're related right so you can have elements of a common um a, a common shared literary culture influencing books which aren't any more directly related than that and you know, the introduction to my Art of Sword Fighting in earnest, I kind of speculate about whether Vadi was like a precursor to the Bolognese stuff um, and speculate as to how he sits 
in the kind of tradition coming from Fiore. And what you're saying, yeah. the stuff that you've dug up, um, would suggest that he is closer to being a kind of midpoint between Fiore's art and the later 16th century Bolognese stuff, which makes me extremely happy. Um, I'm, I can't reliably state that from the internal evidence of the text as I read it. Mm-hmm. So isn't there something unique about Fiore, though? It isn't Fiore, because it could well, be there's that, many unique that. things about him. It, exactly. Like, what, what, and and also his, his tradition of like how he came up. So if we see these elements of, um, I guess... pedagogical um, truisms, right? Something that rings true from both Fiore that shows up in Vadi. If that's the case, and we see that, and there are things that are unique to the way that Fiore is teaching, um, can we really say that that's just, that in in and of itself would be common? But the relationship between how Fiore wrote his book and how he taught his classes is by no means established. Right. It is. It is. The the, the problem with Fiore's book, really, in in all the versions of the treatise that we have, is it seems to be like a century or so ahead of its time. I mean, it's reliably dated, but Mm -hmm. it's it is so well organized. It is so well presented. It is so beautifully done that it should, from a pedagogical perspective or a book writing perspective, it should be like part of a much longer tradition of illustrated organized treatises but as far as i know it's not i've not found anything that's even remotely as well organized until like 100 years later yeah so it's 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 extraordinary um and yeah i you, you could lose months years in, in trying to speculate is exactly where it came from and at the end of the day I'm, I'm fairly simple I just kind of like hitting people and teaching other people how to hit people <laughs> I'm not yeah, no, I'm not it, actually, I'm not actually all that academic yeah I, I mean I, I don't have a, a structured academic background for this sort of thing it's just been like as we've gone down this journey of just trying to mm-hmm. really understand the history that behind the fencing, it, it like right. a lot of this happened by accident, right? Like, I mean, we, so much of this was, let's look at the Bentivoglio family. I mean, this is literally Guido Rangoni's <laughs> grandparents here. So let's try to understand like what influence, you know, the Bentivoglio family would have had on Guido Rangoni. And then actually following that Bentivoglio line down and the, the history that really kind of represents the Bentivoglio family, it's, it's, Amazing. I mean, Anton Galeazzo Bentivoglio, the son of Giovanni Bentivoglio, becomes a lawyer um, in 1412. Uh, he ends up getting status, and then he gets tra- has a coup in Bologna in 1420. He gets kicked out of Bologna and then becomes a condottiere. And while he's a condottiere, he has a son, uh, Annibale Bentivoglio, Annibale I. And Annibale becomes a leader of 20 lances at the age of 13. Wow! 13 years old. He takes a command of his first like set of lances. That's 20. So uh, the lance at the time, according to the research that I've done, was three people. 
before they added five and they added the two. Um, yeah, it's it's, uh, it's to my mind, it's a kind of fairy thing. It's like a lance is, is usually a knight yeah. and a squire and a page and maybe an archer or two. I mean, it, it can vary enormously, right. but it's 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 a fighting unit. I think Josh is dealing with a dog. Yeah, sorry. Uh, so <laughs> oh, right. yes, it it was it was definitely um, it was a. Knight Squire page uh, was the the core foundation. Later on, the the archers and usually two crossbowmen, I think, was added in the later 15th century. But, but at again, this point, it, in 15th, it was never yeah. it was never just one coherent right, never thing. Never one person. So this is same. No, no. What I mean right. is, it was it was a lance was not a finite unit. That Correct. Was, in this period, it was always three people. In this period, it was always four people. It was it was always right. somewhat variable and somewhat dependent on the status of the lead knight and the lance. Correct. Yeah, but it, um, with this, in yeah, particular, so he's, like, he's thirteen years old, and he's he's, he's thirteen, and he's leading 60 about sixty people. men. Yes. Yeah, that's what that's, I was getting at. That's pretty impressive. So usually, when they when they were young like that, though, they they usually had somebody senior doing it, and this was kind of the name that they all rallied around because names right. were such a big deal as people. Yeah, he probably he probably did have a minder. I would imagine. Right. I mean, I wouldn't I wouldn't send any child of mine off to battle commanding exactly. without someone, some big burly sergeant watching over them, making sure they right. <laughs> came back. John, well, and this John, is yeah. Go ahead. This is my prevailing theory. Is this is where Darty comes in, and that he would have had to have had a fencing master. He somebody would have had to have taught him the martial sure. arts. And I don't have evidence for this at the moment. Um, but what I have found is in the evolution of this sort of time period is eventually in the same company under uh, Micheletto Attendolo, who is uh, who uh, um, Annabali Bentivoglio kind of came up under. So he's at the Battle of San Romano as an 18-year-old, like, you know, the famous okay. uh, Paolo Uccelli or Uccello uh, painting, the Battle of San Romano. Are you familiar? It rings a bell. It's, it's been a long time. The since triptych, the guys, the condottieri with the, like the really big. Oh hats. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, <laughs> he's at that battle, so um, it's it's pretty incredible. And then he goes down to to Naples and fights against Rene of on with on behalf of Rene of Anjou, or no, against Rene of Anjou. Uh, it but matters. Way, he, yeah, it does matter. <laughs> it, with with uh, so he's with Micheletto Attendolo, and that's where he kind of like cuts his teeth as a condottieri. Um, and so I've got a lot of prevailing theories that kind of build off of that, but it, it's pretty fascinating. His, his young life. Um, okay. I have a question. How is, much do you yeah. think the specifics of the Bolognese style that we see in the 16th century sources, how much do you think of that they were actually practicing 50 years earlier? It depends on. So I think in particular that they had two different mindsets of what would be considered a knightly art and what would be considered a civil civilian art. Um, and I think that they would have differentiated the two in their mind. I think that, um, and Stephen has an interesting theory that especially after 1496, uh, when Annabale brings Guido Antonio de Luca and DeLuca is the reason why I was bringing up the, the company of Micheletto Attendolo, because it's rooted in Arezzo. And I found a whole bunch of DeLucas, right, which is interesting, mm-hmm. um, in this company of Micheletto Attendolo. As in, there were 
two diff, two generations of Delucas that came up also in that mercenary company with Micheletto Attendolo. Then in 1496, we have Annibale Bentivoglio start a school for fencing in Bologna, which he called Il Casino. It's the same year that Guido Antonio De Luca moves to Bologna. And uh, Stephen's theory is that, um, sorry to speak as if for, but on your behalf here, Stephen, um, but is that that what we see come up in the in the Bolognese tradition and the De Luca tradition is a response to what Annibale saw at the Battle of Fornovo, where the Swiss were kicking Italian knights' ass, asses. Interesting so, idea, huh? Yeah. Okay. So that's why yeah, we you've, see got write, that. you've, you've got to write that up and put that in a in an article. Yeah, I'd read it. <laughs> we are. Yeah, I mean, that's but that's that's kind of like these these crazy twists and turns, because, you know, like up to that point, you know, a knightly art was very much a knightly art. I mean, uh, in the Battle of Zanganata, where uh, Anton Galeazzo Bentivoglio, really the first battle that he experienced under uh, Pandolfo Malatesta, like Pandolfo Malatesta has a day to observe the field and the guy that he's fighting against, uh, Della Pergola, had like literally broken the locks on the local canals and flooded the fields. And, you know, um, the, the Malatesta walk out there and they see that the fields are completely inundated with water and they still say, Hey, you know what? We're going to do a heavy cavalry charge against this field. (laughs) So they just, they go for it. Right. And it it turns into an absolute disaster of a battle. But then again, it's like, what was their concept of, of using mixed arms or even sort of diversifying? Mm-hmm. And, you know, would, would they have felt comfortable dismounting and fighting on foot uh, in armor? Or would that have made it worse, you know? They, should have, like, they should have learned from the English at Agincourt. That, that, that's, that it, was kind of the English exactly, thing. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, charge. But, Let's but see that, how that works that was, for you. That was uh, 80 years, no, yeah, 80 years earlier. Yeah. So yeah. maybe that was old-fashioned. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> but I guess the the point that I'm trying to get at is that there was still this, like the hev- heavy armored charge was still such a, a glorious and, and glorified thing at this time sure. that it, it's it's hard for... It still wasn't know. Waterloo. No. I mean, you know, Napoleon's heavy cavalry. Right. Right. They were they were supposed yeah, to be no, glorious. I mean, I mean, and they 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 got shot to bits um, because cuirassiers ca- versus cannons. <laughs> the, the development the development of warfare is is conversational, right? Just like fencing, sure. right? Um, and so you know, sometimes in a conversation, if you if you recognize that your uh, your fencing partner is quote unquote soft spoken, right? They're they're very soft in their yeah. guards, or perhaps they're very like technical. And you come at them with a lot of force. A lot of times, you'll overpower them, and you can you can really like dominate the conversation, right? Um, sure. To the contrary, and and so warfare kind of goes through those same phases, and we see infantry become paramount, especially as it goes into the early 1600s uh, or 1500s, excuse me, this early 16th century. Uh, we see that infantry shift, um, whereas heavy cavalry really dominated the 15th century. Um, and, but we see the beginnings of that really start to happen in, in, in the 1480s. Okay. So I'm happy to take your word for it. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is an interesting thought as to how, how that would have played out in the, in the development of the fencing that we see in the books. Because that's really the only kind of fencing we can recreate. Because right. 
you know, it's very difficult to recreate anything from other than kind of gross troop movements from records of battles. Right. Right. Like, you know, how do they hold their swords? How did they stand? How did they move? We don't right. know. It's hard enough to do it even from fencing manuals. And those are right. quite specific. Yeah. All right. So it is a melee. You are going to be leading a, a squad at a melee celebrating a wedding in 1487. Do you recruit your men from Ferrara, from Urbino, from Milan, or from Bologna? That is to say, do you, do you take Fioris, do you take Vadius, do you take guys from Pietromonte, or do you take Bolognese fencers? Ah, uh, uh, okay, well, okay. That's not a fair question. Because you wouldn't, you wouldn't, all right. There's, how do we know that Fiori's art had not been corrupted in Ferrara 80 years later? We don't know, Could right? Uh, Pietro Monte's boys did really well. And the Bolognese stuff has a lot to recommend it. And Vadi, we have no evidence that Vadi ever taught anybody anything about swords at all. Right? All right. Right. So we have his book, but and, and it seems to be good stuff. And it seems to be based on, you know, it has some, sort of not based on, but it has some connection to other stuff that we know to be good. So we have reason to suppose that it is good. And we try it in practice and it works. But there's no reason to suppose that he ever trained anybody. So taking somebody from Udine, he would probably not have been trained by Vadi. Right? Okay. So... I, I, I tell you what I would do, right? I would take somebody from each of those places. <laughs> That's a good idea. And I would make yeah. sure they were friends, right? And get them all drunk the night before so they all became friends. Okay, all right. Right? And then I would take those, them out. That's what I would do. Okay. So we could right. we could draw from the strengths of each of those. From each areas. one. All right. The, the, right. That is that is the Gordian knot approach. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> why, why choose? Why choose? Right. When exactly. It's like the whole yeah. single fiber becoming a strong rope when you take it exactly. and intertwine them exactly. all. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, would, I would I would I would take a conciliant approach as well. There we go. All right, guy. Thank you very much. It's been an honor having yeah. you on. Well, it's been lovely talking to you guys. Thanks for having me. the Bolognese podcast. I want to thank Dr. Guy Windsor again for coming on and sharing his wisdom with us. This is a special episode for us because it really marks the 20,000 download mark and we couldn't have done that without you, our loyal listeners. So we just wanted to extend a heartfelt thank you for listening to whatever the heck this thing is. Um, it's been special. So thank you for sticking with us and, and watching this thing develop and see where it goes in the future who knows but just wanted to extend our things and let you know that we appreciate you uh, so thank you very much next week we're gonna have uh, Jean Chandler 
Uh, Jean is going to talk to us about guilds and all sorts of stuff. It's probably one of the nerdiest episodes that we've done in a long time. Um, but it was an absolute blast to do. Uh, so stay tuned for that and uh, stay saucy. Awesome.